Hello, my name's Rob and welcome to the Uncut Network, uh, the podcast in which we talk about actors, directors and genres on a rotating schedule, but because this is the end of the year and or the beginning of the year, depending on when you listen to this, we have to do the one thing that every podcast under the sun does, and that's a review of the year. And uh, to do that, I am joined by Kat. Hello there. Hey. And Naomi. Hello. Um, how are you both? How's Christmas been for you both? How are you both doing? Yeah, good. Relaxed. Nice. Caught up with lots of films. Yeah, I mean, I have a five-year-old, so it was less relaxed. Um, lots of unboxing of toys on Christmas Day, but yeah, otherwise not too bad. We went to the the Blue East Day show today, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, just lots of family time. I can't imagine that would have been anything other than crazy with all of the kids with Bluey. Bluey is very popular with small children. Yeah, it's so it's like a puppets and like it was basically like a puppet show version of the story done on a big stage at the um, South Bank Centre. And yeah, it's got all the characters and like stuff from the episodes and, and whatnot. And yeah, she had a well of time. It ends with them throwing like giant inflatable balls into the audience so that you can play keepy uppy with the characters. And it was carnage. There was just like my <laughs> Aurora included, just children throwing themselves like into the air trying to touch this bloody ball. So yeah, it was that was an experience. Sounds like hell. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like this is why those sort of bouncy, I don't know what they call them, those bouncy worlds. Where they've got all sort of the cushions where the soft play that's worlds. That's the one. Like they're why laws soft exist. Play. Let them tile themselves out. Well, oh, be good. <laughs> On to the podcast proper. Um, unlike previous years, where we've run down ten to one, everybody sort of has a go, and everybody eventually. Well, let's just say it was a lot of repetition. Last year, it was everything, everywhere, all at once, and the barrier banshees of Inisherin were mentioned so much, and there was so much repetition that, well. We had to kind of change things a little bit, so um, instead we're just going to run through... Well, we're going to run through it month by month, and the things that people have picked will be factored in whenever they came out during the year. And we were due to be joined by, um, also from Ghouls, as the two people who joined me today are, um, Liz Bishop and Kim Morrison. And uh, from Road to Nowhere, Andy Connor. So their, their picks will pop up in reference. We don't talk about them in the same way, but in reference. So they might not be able to be present today, but at least their choices will be represented. And elsewhere on the podcast, I'll be going round my table to find out what uh, the people here thought were the best films of 2023. Who am I? Uh, I'm Graham Williamson, host of this podcast, Sister Show Pop Screen. Uh, we are combining forces to do our traditional best of the year, of the year just gone list. The second half will be on Pop Screen's feed on January the 11th, uh, which is next Thursday. But for now, we are covering these January through till June. And uh, I've been joined by James. Hello. Oh. Uh, by Mike. Hi. By Oliver. Hi. Uh, by Simon. Hello there. And Vincent. Hi, Oppie. I'm here to look into these murders on the dance floor that could be falls, along with my lifelong friend looking for her birth mother, whose job is spider and composed music while finding new homes for abandoned babies. So there's all that to look forward to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Aren't you yes. all glad that I was last? 
<laughs> it's good. It's like the William S. Burroughs cut-up technique applied to podcasts. <laughs> 2023 started, as years generally do, in January. Which what? Is, I know. Never. July. <laughs> January is, of course, traditionally the month where most of the Oscar <laughs> contenders uh, come out in Britain. And this year, it does not get much more Oscar nominated than Todd Field's Tar. What there was this year, wasn't it? It was this year. <laughs> yeah. Like every post-pandemic year, 2023 feels like it's lasted about a decade, but that was this year. Tar does in some ways feel like a film from 22 because it was up for all the awards at this year's award ceremonies, but indeed mm. its release was in January of 23. Um, I remember going to see this, um, unusually for me, I actually saw it with a group of other people because generally I go to movies by myself, but this one I actually saw with a group, um, mm. a group of fellow academics, um, so people who we can be a bit chin-strokey, and I think we had a lot <laughs> to stroke our chins about uh, after Tar. It was because that is a film which gives you a lot of problems, um, good problems. You know, I think that it's... Absolutely, uh, something that is it's it's worth stroking your chin um, about tar because it is fascinating, it is measured, it is confident, and I also think it's a highly sophisticated psychological probe, and it touches on so many different uh, topics. It deals with creativity, genius, artistry, ego, obsession, paranoia, abuse, manipulation, celebrity culture, cancel culture. So I think describing it that way, I, if you've not seen Tar, then I'm, I, either I've sold it or I've really put you off. There's probably not any in between. Um, but I'll give a simpler summary of it. Tar is, I think, what a film would look like if Alfred Hitchcock had made a movie about a composer. That, that's one of the more down-to-earth summaries I've read of it. I think the, the praise before release got so exorbitant that I was half convinced it was just a film Twitter in-joke that had got a bit out of hand. <laughs> oh, yeah, to there was a whole thing about <laughs> treating Lydia Tarr as a real person, wasn't there? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I heard she died through Twitter. That was, that was crazy. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, I would compare uh, it more to Kubrick than Hitchcock, personally. But um, I was seeing this too. I actually saw Eyes Wide Shut at the cinema last night, and ah. Todd Field turns up as the uh, piano player yeah, uh, in the orgy. He does. So Good I was thinking there was quite a lot. He must have picked up quite a lot from Kubrick mm. on set of that film. It's got a similar uh, malevolence spiced up with moments of uh, very disarming comedy. I think. Yes, I think the comedy is what I was kind of going for. It's it's quite dark, yeah. but it also can be quite funny. I don't. I mean, I I haven't got it in my top ten. I mainly because I actually forgot. Well, but mainly because I, I forgot it even came out this year. But um, <laughs> I don't think I don't think it quite is Kubrick. But it's definitely that's what I would say is that the closest comparison point for me. And who is right other than Stanley Kubrick? Yeah. <laughs> also, it has Nina Hoss, who's who's great. Obviously, I love Nina Hoss. Um, who I actually think outacts Kate Blanchett, which maybe is an unpopular opinion, but well, that's a, uh, that's a tall order. I mean, I consider Kate Blanchett's one of my absolute favourite actors, and to see her do something that was so nuanced and so—I mean, not that this is unusual for her—but so many a performance on so many layers, and I think this is important. A character—it's um, less common you see uh, women, female characters who are unlikable. 
and it's okay for them to be unlikable. There was a book um, published recently by Anna Bogutsky on unlikable, uh, unsympathetic female characters. And mm. I, you know, it, and I imagine it came out too recently to include Tar, but I think Tar in, fits that description. And it's great to see that kind of, I don't want to call it adventurousness, but that willingness to put someone on screen who, in some respects, you know, you think should be some, well, this is somebody you're supposed to admire. You know, this is a, um, a woman, a gay woman, no less, who has conquered a very male dominated world. And yet, as the film progresses, it's like, yes, well, I'm I'm with her and I'm kind of, you know, I'm going along for the journey, but I'm glad she's fictional <laughs> in that respect. But at the same time, I think the film does a great job of being able to present this pretty despicable person in a light that is compelling and at times also sympathetic. So, you know, she's both an unsympathetic and she's unlikable, but also sympathetic, which is quite an accomplishment. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, Tar is, absolute, is an absolute work of genius. It's, uh, of course, not the only awards contender that was out that month. You have Steven Spielberg making a movie that he's long promised about his upbringing and his falling in love with cinema, uh, which is The Fableman. Yeah, I, I really like this film. I thought, um, to be honest with you, it's been, it's been a long time since I saw it, because so, I saw it when it came out, so I haven't really got much to say about it. <laughs> I, I just remember really liking it, so... Um... And yeah, I mean that's it. I mean I don't know. <laughs> they want to see more recently than me. Maybe maybe they can add a bit more to it. But I can't. Um, you know, I feel like I've been so long since I saw it. But um, do remember thinking watching it and being very moved by it. Um, Steven Spielberg is obviously. Um, I don't know how to say it really. Sort of. His film. It's kind of his bread and butter, really. It's kind yeah. of you know like emotional kind yeah. of sense. It's kind of sweet, but and and sometimes I, I, that kind of annoys me with his films. But I think it works here. I think the the material kind of asks for it, um, and obviously there's there's it's it's actually quite funny as well. And I think Michelle Williams is very good in it, and it obviously looks very good because it's Steven Spielberg. Um, yeah, just a, a very solid film. I think it's sort of you know I don't think it's a I don't think it's his best, but I think it's a very solid film. I think that he's on a very good upward uh, swing at the minute with that and West this and West Side Story. God, I love um, West Side Story. I think yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think West Side Story is, is probably I, I like that one more than this one, but I think yeah, this is still a good, <laughs> a good um, you know net follow up film, and yeah, I think it's kind of it's kind of kind of cheesy, but when when David uh, Lynch comes on as uh, John Ford, I thought it was quite funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, imagine how good West Side Story would be if it had a cameo from David Lynch. <laughs> as, Just as riff. Yes, uh, would David Lynch be dancing though? Hopefully, yes. Of course. I hope so. <laughs> Imagine he's like a Christopher Walken style dancer. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little it's more mixed right. on the Fablemans. Who, um, I mean, I certainly enjoyed uh, the Fablemans as well. I thought it looked gorgeous. I found it in some ways quite enchanting. And it was putting, you know, creativity, passion and pain and, that, and the tension between them on screen. And it had this sense of this sort of the messiness of life. And it's a very much a film that is in love with cinema. Now, I remember watching this and there were various points that, because I know certain aspects of Spielberg's life, there were points that came up in the movie and I was like, oh, that, oh, that. And I'm wondering, was that the feeling other people had if you happen to know the aspects of Spielberg's biography? It's like, Haha, yeah, I get it. Yeah, nice. Uh, no, um, I didn't know a lot about his childhood other than the 
John Ford anecdote, which is obviously what uh, started off the whole David Lynch speculation, because uh, he was when he was when he was doing the John Ford story in an interview, he was basically doing an impression of David Lynch. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I I felt. I don't know. There was something quite unassuming about it and a little inconsequential. And I think that's why I didn't completely love it. I felt yeah, like it was that. a bit of a mix between like a sort of superhero origin story for Steven Spielberg. And then also kind of this weirdly deeply guilty um, thing that he might have, uh, you know, broken up his, his parents' marriage with. Um, so it, there was a lot going on there for me, but I just never really kind of fully got invested in it as emotionally as quite a lot of people did. I, I felt like it was a bit sort of a mix, like a weird mix between patting himself on the back and then whipping himself. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, I don't really know uh, where I land on it uh, entirely, but I did, I did love the David Lynch cameo, which is, you know, feels like it's from a completely different film, but I also don't really have a problem with that. Scale. I quite like the Fablemans. So I thought it was a, uh touching love letter to Spielberg's parents. Um, um, he was a child of divorce. I don't know if anyone knew that from his films, but I think <laughs> don't <it's> say. <laughs> and um, it also captured his passion for filmmaking, the wonderful love of cinema. I can be a sucker for that kind of thing sometimes. And I was especially blown away by a moment where um, a realisation through film editing, which how many films can you say hinge a key moment on edit which mm, i quite enjoyed and and yes the lynch cameo was easily a high point and particularly when he's like no shoot it from the up top or bottom in the middle is fucking boring and then the final <laughs> shot just proves that really yeah absolutely uh, no i really liked it uh on the exact other end of the scale from all these big hollywood productions january also saw the release of mark jenkins follow-up debate ennis main which i don't know if uh, i'm getting a few nods people did see this one it, it would be strange if they didn't considering that this is a collation <laughs> of everyone's top 10 uh, <laughs> what did everyone think of this i oh this is a, i actually so, sorry this is actually not on my top 10 but uh it should be. <laughs> okay. I'm going to, on the fly, take out Fablemans and, and put that one in. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I'd put it on there. I don't, I don't know. It's on my I love how the structure of this is changing as we're speaking. It's going to be <laughs> yeah. a completely different show by the end of the actual recording. <laughs> yeah, a place to get together and, and make, convince each other that we're all wrong, which exactly. is great. I'm happy with that. Yeah, this recording's sort of like going to an island and finding all this, uh, seeing all this beautiful scenery, but then time and perception start not operating the way we expect. It's just like that, isn't it? <laughs> just very much like Fantasy that. Island listeners, that's what he's talking about. No, yes. <laughs> I was going to say a lot, right. but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Ennis Man, mm, let's, yeah. let's pick it apart. I, mm -hmm. uh, I was fairly Hang on. distracted. We've by got to get it. through a lot of movies. You know, we could we could be talking about Ennis Main all night. <laughs> yes, <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, I um I found it quite troubling, but I did mm. enjoy it. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because it did remind me an awful lot of um very very classic folk horror, but like mm. a lot more obtuse than than any of those things. I don't really have much to add other than that. I kind of got swept away in it and battered and uh then it sort of spat me out at the other end uh, i would love to watch it again though i will say that 
yeah, it was a weird experience because I think I wasn't sure if I was on board with it. But then after I finished watching it, I couldn't stop thinking about it, particularly just the, the final like transformation thing towards the end. So it's yeah. a really weird one of it. It's like genuinely haunting film. Um, it's a very, yeah, it's, 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 it's indescribable because it's, 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 a, it's very much going to be like you go with it or you don't. And yeah, like Simon was saying, it is an experiential nightmare, really. <laughs> Even though nothing that horrific really happened. But it's just as a sort of experience. It's just very strange and odd. I saw this on uh, on release day, and um, surprisingly, it was very busy. Yeah, um, my screening was packed too. Yeah, mine was as well. Actually, oh, I think really? there was seven people. Walking. And then I I thought about it because like, why why was it like this? Why do people walk out of this? And then I watched the trailer and realised that the trailer makes it look like a very conventional horror film. It does. And I was wondering mm. if maybe people came thinking they were getting like. The Wicker Man, and they've actually got—I don't know what I'd really compare it to, but something like a Nicholas Rogue film or something like that—and mm, they've kind of gone fuck that's this. That's good. Doesn't yeah. make any sense. Um, yeah. But I, but I really of, loved it. Really loved it. Speaking of the Wicker Man, did you notice that the film actually ends on the day that uh, Sergeant Howie is burned in the Wicker Man? Of the exact mm. day, isn't it? Cause the it's exact seven, day. Seven yeah. Three. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. <laughs> good lord. It's a prequel. <laughs> <laughs> And I had a little bit of a reshuffle because this is a rare record for technical reasons. And I imagine nobody's heard of this. And it's also very accurately titled. It's called January. It's from January. And it's the first movie that I want to talk about. And again... Go for it. I've never, <laughs> I've never heard of it. So I'm intrigued. Um, Tell me more. It's a Bulgarian folk horror mystery thing. <laughs> Um, set in the woods. I don't know when it is because folk horror tends to be sort of out of loop of time. But it's one of these movies that just is, is so aesthetically my jam. I can excuse the fact that it's very slow. I can excuse the fact that it's sort of obscure and European. But it's a movie about sort of a, a slow creep of sleep paralysis hitting this very weird little part of rural, very rural Bulgaria. And it's sort of helping me complete my, uh, I don't know how you describe it, my series of movies, my folk horror movies, where every movie is named after a month of the year. Because we've got November from a few <laughs> years back, and November was great. And I haven't seen that one either. If you've seen that or heard of that one at least, this is very much of the same sort of stock. That weird, creepy, okay. mysterious European folk horror. Oh, cool. Not for everybody. No, I mean, the words, the words are slow burn and never and... I mean, I do like my my folk horror, but slow, slow is not me. Cat yeah. Cat has much more, uh, much more sort of patience when it comes to these things. I'm yeah. I'm more of a if we're not there in minute twenty, <laughs> yeah. to be frank, I'm over it. Well, it, there's slow burn and a slow burn. I like slow burn where it actually yeah. builds to something. There's so much slow burn, which is just an excuse to just be slow, and it doesn't actually go anywhere. Yeah, true, true. I don't think this is it, but. So why would you why would you recommend it to anyone who's never seen it before? I don't think I can. <laughs> it's one of those. No, 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 no. You see, that's not no. Sell it to me, my friend. Sell it to me. Why why should I watch this joyous thing? I won't call it joyous either, but I think it's just uh, unique and one of a kind. And you don't get these sort of movies made. One of the things that I really really bothers me about British cinema is we've got all of this sort of historical land and all of these like fables and folk stories and all we do is make movies this will pop up later in one of my picks by the way this sort of idea all we do is make movies about posh people and working class struggles 
and to see that we were better in we were better in the seventies, but that kind of that kind of aspect of it has fallen away a tad, isn't times? Hmm. Yes. Closing the month off on a similarly independent scale, we've got another film that isn't quite horror, but is certainly very unnerving. Uh, we've got Ali Abassi's follow-up to Border, uh, Holy Spider. Which is, an, I think, an absolute masterpiece. Mm. Uh, Holy Spider, I mean, it's one of these tricky situations where the story, I think, um, behind the story behind the film is almost... Well, there's the story before the film and the story around the film's production, and then there's the film itself, and they're all kind of equally fascinating um, mm. in that the uh, director and star have been, um, uh, because of the film, were effectively banished and sentenced to, uh, and certainly uh, it may have been sentenced to death, um, but certainly given a very you know severe um, con- uh, judgment against them by the mm. Iranian government. And therefore, you know, cannot go back to Iran. And in some respects, that's not terribly, I suppose, it's not surprising, considering this is quite a damning film about Iranian culture, mm, uh, about Iranian politics, but often not necessarily in the ways one that I might have expected, at least not, um, and perhaps not only me. And then, you know, this is inspired by. Uh, true events as well. So there's the true story. If you're, I mean, I expect there are true crime um, accounts of this particular case. You know, concerning a um, you know a serial killer um, in a holy mm. city um, uh, of Iran. And on the one hand, this is a it is kind of it is a serial killer film, um, but not I think in the ways you might expect. I remember saying to a friend of mine I was going to see this, and he was like, "Oh yeah, a bit of Hannibal Lecter," and I'm like. I doubt it, and no, indeed, it's, not, quite it's that. not like that at all. Wherein we we find out who the killer is quite early, and he's in no way charismatic. He's actually quite pitiful. Um, mm. And if you ever wanted to see, you know, a, per- a perfect demonstration of toxic masculinity, right there. Um, but it's at the same time uh, beyond that toxic masculinity. It's not just embodied in an individual. It is. We're talking here about misogyny that is weaponized that is politicized that is institutionalized and in the middle of this we've got this incredibly dogged journalist um who is who is facing you know this uh, misogyny at every turn that she met that she takes you know she tries to check into a hotel and is told that she can't do that for no particular reason until she explains uh, you know look i am a journalist here are my credentials yada 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 um mm. it's compelling it's utterly chilling as you say graham it's kind of on the um horror end of things and i call this what's what i consider social horror it's Mm. saying that horror isn't only in something exceptional it's not only in something that is other this is about horror that is all around and impacts and i you know and some could say well yes okay fine but it's in this very particular situation of Iran, but I think that the kind of the themes this film deals with, its um, its portrayal of misogyny and toxic masculinity, is in no way specifically specific to a particular social political context. I think you could find that all over the world. It's yeah, it's it's an important film. Um, the the fact that it has made you know the Iranian government quite angry. I think is a demonstration that it's important 
And, you know, here we, this was back in January, it was out, it's subsequently been released. Um, it certainly was available on Mubi, maybe it still is, but still I do is. think it's a film that everyone should see. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I watched it uh, when I was also midway through The Long Shadow, the ITV dramatization of The Hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. And that thing you said about universal applicability obviously rang completely true because I was thinking, oh, right, these are the same story, aren't they? Uh, I must admit, I, I did have, I did think that the journalist character was a little underwritten. But Zarel Ebrahami is really great in that role, and it does a lot to paper over what I thought was a, a slight weakness in the writing there. Yeah, fair comment. I still need to see it, but I would love Same. to. <laughs> if you weren't sure about seeing it or not, have I sold it to you? Oh, I 100%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is odd because I've certainly never thought of February as like the hot month for new releases, but it has nevertheless got uh, more nominations, more films nominated for people's top 10 than any other month. And it begins in what might be the most dramatic tonal U-turn from Holy Spider uh, with Marcel the Shell with shoes on. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, it's just a delightful film. It's uh, it's such a great. It's, it's it's probably like a great tonic for something like Only Spider. I yeah I I'm, yeah I've been seeing this with my uh, housemate. We were just utterly <laughs> utterly charmed by it. Um, it's uh, and it's again much sadder than, than you expect it to be. And I think it's got great vocal performance from uh, Jenny Slate and um and uh, Isabel Rossellini as well as. Uh, <laughs> the maternal figure. It's a hell of a duo. Yeah, it's a duo we never knew we needed. It's yeah, it's <laughs> it, it it many there's many things in it that shouldn't really work, but I think it's just so I don't know. I just found it utterly charming. I just sort of completely, I just completely fell for it. I loved it. Did anyone else see that one? Missed it. Ah, uh, uh, if yeah, you want to pick me up, if you want a nice yeah. sort of little comfort movie, uh, is a good one. It's it's. It's a family-friendly one, actually. I think, it's, I think it was PG, I think. I it was, know. yes. Yeah, which is interesting because you wouldn't consider it a family film because it's sort of it's touching on sort of quite sad, deep material and sort of like grown-up material in a sense. But um, yeah. And also it's A24 who were not known yes. for their family favourites, are they? No, for sure, for sure. What really helps with it is that, yes, it touches on some difficult subjects but it does it through marcel's innocent point of view it makes him accessible to more ages than that subject matter can traditionally be plus it also helps that there's such charming whimsy like when marcel plays an uncooked piece of pasta like a trombone <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there's so much inventive stuff of how marcel gets around the house and uh Lots of jokes made for like him in a hamster ball. It's just oh, I'm just gonna watch it again now. I'm just gonna see it in the cinemas. It's a, it's just a lovely little film. Sticking on uh, animated family friendly tip, uh, albeit with some dark themes. We've all this was also the month when Puss in Boots: The Last Wish came out, which I know is a favourite of someone here. Although I've forgotten who. It's me. I <laughs> this made it onto my list though. I wasn't. I can't say I was excited for the film. I mean, I lukewarm at best on the first person boots, but this film blew me away. I would call it the Top Gun Maverick of animated films. And I just Sold. thought it was so real. Yeah. Tall. I just thought it was so wonderful how it dealt with 
that there was a gorgeous animated style there were which invoked um anime and felt influenced by into the spider-verse and it had a wonderful sense of humor like there's a running joke with involving an jiminy cricket style ethical bug on a hopeless mission make the villains see good and then it had interesting themes about mortality family and like how we deal with the past and i can't say enough how much this blew me away more than i expected um and you know what i would actually i now actually care for another shrek film so well done, <laughs> it's coming it's coming is that actually i think so yeah oh gosh uh let's double check but i'm pretty sure uh, no it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a strange thing i wish i seem to be the the outlier when it comes to opinions on Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. And I wish I liked it as much as others like James did, but I it did not really work for me. I just found I found it intermittently amusing and often quite laboured. It looked stunning. I absolutely agree. What it did in terms of different animation styles uh, was really striking. Um, and it had interesting ideas of family, friendship, mortality, and so on. But for whatever reason, it just did not quite work for me. So I should probably give it another go. Maybe I'll enjoy it more on a second viewing. Well, we could go straight from this to a film that Vincent did enjoy more of, uh, which is Hirokatsu Koryeda's new film, Broker. Ooh. Well, since you asked so nicely, why not? Yes. Um, Broker is a movie that, when you hear the con- the premise of it, I mean, it is a sort of thing that makes someone go, wait, what? Really? <laughs> um a Japanese director, but it's set in Korea. And it does this thing that I find is remarkable with Korean filmmaking um, that and, and able to do a really great balance of tones that you can have it. And Broker does this as well. At points, Broker is quirky. At other points, it's amusing. Sometimes it's touching. Sometimes it's melancholy. But it sort of dr- balances this whim- whimsical humor, sometimes almost slapstick humor, with tragic inevitability, but there's also this cautious hope and humanism, as we have these sort of low-level um, criminals who watch a adoption agency. And by adoption agency is putting it, I think, you know, in its broadest sense, because a place, apparently this is a thing in Korea, where un, uh, parents of unwanted children or children they can't really support can bring the baby, effectively put the baby in a kind of a drawer in this building at night and then the baby will be taken into the adoption service it's an anonymous donation almost to adoption so how long um, are the babies our... in the drawer pardon how long are the babies in the drawer are they just left well, not there long. for no 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 not long. Long. I think the place is like, like somebody know, on the other side i think oh, yeah, okay. it's staffed 24 hours um, so <laughs> as soon as the baby is left there they are immediately brought in but the point is you don't okay. have to sign anything it can just be anonymously in the nicest way possible, abandoned. But then you've got these folks who watch the drawer, the place to leave the baby, and will sometimes steal the baby and then sell it to people who want to adopt kind of you know, on the black market, as it were, which sounds like, yeah. Uh, but what's amazing is that the characters we follow in this, they have this resigned desperation and there's a sense of social neglect and that's very, you know, it works on the basis of sort of unorthodox family. But I was watching this, I remember going like, seriously? And then moving to, <laughs> oh, that's that that's sweet. And then <laughs> that that's really funny. And then, oh, that's heartbreaking. 
Um, yeah, Broker was yeah, magnificent. And I think, you know, more people should see it. Um, you know, clearly like it's uh, one that just the premise is making people here going like, but seriously? So, you know, I <laughs> yeah, think I feel that's like we've just accidentally done a reaction video. <laughs> yeah. I've been doing a reaction video. It's just without meaning to, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Beginning to my talents. Yeah. I think it helps that one of the um, the brokers is played by Song Kang Ho is always just so endearing in everything. Mm-hmm. Is you can't help absolutely a, sort of for him in some way. Yeah, it's the first time I've seen in the um, uh, Corey Ada film. I'm definitely going to see more because I know obviously you know you big deal with shoplifters and various other things. Um, yeah, it's it's it, it's get it. It it does sort of take you by surprise in terms of um, your sympathies towards the characters because, like you said, the setup is sort of who are you really like. You really, you're very suspicious of many of the characters uh, from the start, but you do warm them. Yeah, I, 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 I second Vincent. It's a, it's a really, really interesting film. We've got some genre choices as well as drama uh, for this month as well. There was M Night Shyamalan's Knock, in the, Knock at the Cabin released this month. I would say it's a return to form, but I'm very critical of the man, so I would say that. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sort of um, M. Night Shyamalan defender, as you might say. Um, actually had an argument with, a, well, not an argument, but a um, a debate, a heated debate with a, a, mm. one of my stu- uh, fellow uh, classmates at uni, course mates even, um, about M. Night Shyamalan when I told him that I had put this in my top 10 films of the year. Um, but yeah, it's a great film. Um, you know, it's sort of, it's a short, tense thriller has some it looks amazing every Shyamalan film is is always framed very well he's knows exactly where to put put the camera he's very good at um orchestrating movement how people move around the camera and block things um also has some very horrible scenes of like a you know it cuts to this like tv and these like apocalyptic visions very um startling stuff um i think that uh dave batista very good in it um yeah, yeah. Just a really enjoyable um, sort of nuts and bolts thriller that I don't think we get very much of anymore. Um, and yeah, really enjoyed it. Just, um, you know, it's quite a simple, you know, nothing nothing fancy film, but I think that's sometimes just what you want, really. So, and um, one of the less weird films <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan has made in the last 10 years, which I like the weird films he makes, but um, it's kind of good to see him do something that's a bit more, uh, not believable or normal, but just you know a bit more straight, straight and narrow sort of Hitchcock. Yeah. You know, more influenced by sort of you know Hitchcock and early two thousands, late nineties thrillers. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more accessible. It's so straightforward that it's not even really got a twist either. So. <laughs> it's uh, I I I quite liked it too. Uh, I you know it probably might be my favorite Shyamalan film. I've never out and out loved any of his films, but I thought this one was definitely the most solid one that I've seen in, in quite a long time. I didn't think it was as fun as old, but I certainly thought it was a better film. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I've i got a lot of time for Knock at the Cabin. I didn't love it. Um, I mean, it's good. It's got good acting. I didn't. I feel like it's one of those films where if you are either incredibly left-wing or incredibly right-wing, you're going to come out of it feeling like your preferences have been met. It was the sort of film that, mm. You know, you could take it whichever way you wanted. I think, as always, Dave Batista is extraordinary. I think he's become one of the best character actors yeah. uh, of our times, which is surprising, really. 
Um, I don't think anyone would have expected, you know, as a former wrestler for him to be anywhere near as exceptionally good as he is. But and I liked Jonathan Groff, isn't it? Yes. Am I making that up? Yes. No, it's Jonathan Groff. Um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't for me. I did not care for the ending, but, you know, I can appreciate that people enjoyed hmm. it. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the, the ending in the book is is the better is the better ending. Um, yes, and I w- absolutely without question. Yeah. As I made the mistake of reading the book first, and and it does slight, it does change the ending, and I prefer mm. the ending in the book because the book does leave it more uh, ambiguous. When you did read the book, as I did, did you not find yourself thinking, "God, if they don't get Dave Batista for this role, some <laughs> casting yeah. director needs to be fired." He is absolutely all this made for him. Absolutely, yeah. I thought Rupert Grit was very good as well, actually. Um, uh, it's yeah, not what you wouldn't expect from him. Um, yeah, the Dave Batista was great. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, I still did enjoy the film. I think I, I think it just felt for me the end was over like, oh, it's not. Okay, it, I don't know. It wasn't as satisfying or as interesting to me as in the book, but it's still, like I say, very well shot, well performed. It's it can, and it still actually is quite faithful, largely. Um, to be fair, and it's got a great child performance in it as well. I will say, in Kim's defence, that when she compiled her list, she got confused and just wrote all horror and didn't realise that she could write not horror. So it potentially might not have been <laughs> in in her whole ten. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like we should explain why Kim's choices are all going to be scary. There's some strange choices later on, but that's fine. Um, It's a personal choice, let's just say that. It's not like one of these, it's not like the matter-of-fact, absolute best of the year. It's our oh, favourites, yeah. and that's that's different. That's absolutely different. Oh, yeah, definitely, absolutely. Now, one thing that I found particularly impressive about Knock at the Cabin is it managed to be both intensely intimate and ominously apocalyptic which is an interesting thing to pull off. And it's and if I had a criticism of it, it would be right at the end, kind of clarifying what's been going on. Um, I So it sounds as though I, maybe I would have preferred the ending of the book myself. Um, but to do that kind of blend of home invasion and disaster film, I think is, yeah, uh, Shyamalan did good. Yes, mm-hmm. with a knock at the cabin, I think. I'd let him in. <laughs> yes, I quite like this one. And... Um, um, I just wanted to say that I thought it was quite tense, but the one thing this film has left an impression on me with is someone me- said Dave Batista looks like a more hench Bob Hoskins, and now I can't unsee that. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. I'm always going to see that now whenever yeah. I look at the guy. <laughs> they should have cast him as Mario. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been actually terrific. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Mario. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch it. But is this the action, first obviously. one we've film we've mentioned that all of us have seen. Oh, I haven't seen this. Oh, I've got oh Graham. Uh, Let him aside. But he has read the book, so yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's nothing. That's yeah. he's halfway there. Halfway there. <laughs> Simon, you've actually got a film on this list. I, I believe it's yours that uh, I've never heard of, let alone seen. You've got Next Exit. Me? Next Exit? Did you? That's no. mine. Oh, James, that's yours, there you James. go. Take it away, James. Thank you very My much. <laughs> no, Next Exit was a film which I call uh, Fright Fest last year, and it just sideswiped me at the beginning of my second day and left me in as an emotional wreck. So it actually got a UK release this year, and I revisited it. And it it's still pretty powerful. I mean, for those who don't know, it's a world where 
ghosts are proven to exist. So a doctor played by Karen Gillan um, unveils a scientific sc- study into the afterlife, but it requires volunteers who will commit painless suicide. So then you've got two volunteers um, played by Rahul Kohli and Katie Parker, and they have to share a rental car as they travel cost- across the country to their final destination. And it's quite a heartbreaking and heartfelt and pretty humorous film about this new world where ghosts exist and the different reactions to such life-changing news. And it highlights the importance of forged connections as you've got these two leads who grapple with their final days that are counting down. And they choose to embrace life in that time frame. And it's a film I felt had no artifice. It had emotional beats, which I felt were really earned. And it treats viewers like they're an additional passenger in a rental car. And it's directed by Mally Elfman, who is the daughter of Danny Elfman. And I thought it was an exceptional and life-affirming work. And it also has a message that no matter how much the past may hurt, a brighter future is achievable. And it just really blew me away. And... I wasn't going to pass up the chance to talk about it. Sounds terrific, actually. I, I, yeah. I can't believe I haven't heard of that one either. Mm. No, I, I managed to, I got a review of it, yeah. For the first feature as well, it's, yeah, it's like an existential road mm. trip movie. It's uh, got a central pairing in the middle. It just, I mean, Rahul Gulli is just unbelievably charismatic um, in everything. Um, mm-hmm. But together, the two of them, it's a really, it's a really great film. And it's, it's got a bit of everything. It sort of starts a bit genre-y, but then it sort of becomes all quite realist. And then it sort of, it sort of shifts a lot, but you carry through all the way. Like, I think at the very beginning, where you sort of first see a ghostly encounter, I think it's a really strange experience. And like, it's a bit scary, but a bit sweet and a bit just strange and it really sets up the premise really well um yeah i i, I recommend checking it out i think it was on now tv or something i think but um, um yeah yeah i'm the outlier yeah, again here i think um i was at i was at fright fest <laughs> when uh, james saw next exit um i didn't see it then i saw it for the first time earlier this year um and i have to confess i thought it was fine but it was yeah it was okay um i found it a bit shaky having said that i did think it was uh, delicate, nuanced, and emotional, and does give a nice, you know, and pa- weird comparison, I guess, with Puss in Boots. The Last Wish <laughs> does deal with, you know, think aspects of connection and reasons to live. And like, you know, The Last Wish, it didn't entirely work for me, but yeah, I do think it's an interesting film. Definitely worth a look. So if so, again, you know, we brought this to your attention, Graham. I hope you check it out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and, and we can keep this going because I'm, I've decided I'm not going to ascribe these to any particular person anymore. I should have put the names of everyone who nominated these things in my notes, but it's too late now. But someone <laughs> out there has nominated a film called Unrest, and I don't have a clue what yeah, Unrest is. That was me. Um, Take yeah. it away. I might be the only one who's seen this. I don't know if it's a particularly big film. Uh, it's a movie release. Um, it's a Swiss film by a new director. Well, I say new. It's first feature. First feature length mm. film. I can't That's say new. their name. Cyril Schublin. Maybe saying that wrong. I think they're German. Um, yeah, it's a film that is period piece. I don't know if anyone here saw. Uh, remember the director of the film, The Young Karl Marx, by oh, uh, by, by uh, uh, the guy who did I Am Not Your Negro, Ralph Peck. Yeah, Ralph Peck. Yeah. Um, 
I really love that film. Um, it's kind of similar in the sense that it's a biopic, sort of a biopic about a old left-wing uh, figure. Uh, the main central character is Peter Kropotkin, uh, anarchist. Ah. Um, it centers around his visit to Switzerland in the 1870s, which is where he found and met a group of watchmakers, radical watch, watchmakers, um, who are in sort of um, not really doing anything other than just, you know, sort of being radical, striking and uh, sending letters to other unions around the world. Um, It's a very strange film. It's about time, labour, anarchism, left-wing politics. Uh, It's it's period drama, so I I quite like all that kind of stuff anyway. um, It has these very um, strangely... um, uh, The framing is all very strange. It's very naturalistic. Uh, Yeah. It's just really enjoyable. It's, it's almost, it's not a fantasy. It's a very real film, but it's quite dreamy. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, really, without sort of just watching it. Um, but it's very, it's very European. I guess my friend, uh, we we agreed it was like the, just like the quintessential, like European, sort of left-wing <laughs> European film of the year. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's very much about <laughs> left-wing things really so it's it's just good yeah i really enjoyed it i think it's uh it's, it's actually very high up on my list um i would highly recommend if anyone has a movie to give it a watch it's, it's like 90 yeah, minutes and, i'm sold. um yeah it's uh it's good it's sort of um it's about nationalism as well lots of you know it's clashing between the uh sort of more nationalistic swiss people and the the um the anarchists which was a you know a huge thing at the time in switzerland it was you know, sort of where the, the movement became very popular. So, yeah, I recommend it. Um, another one which is going to be a hard sell and another one from me, and I'm, I assure you all of the weird ones are over and done with now, um, it's the Donkey movie, E.O. Um, yeah, I still haven't seen this. I feel like you mentioned... Did you mention this at the end of last year? I could have. Maybe somebody else did. I've, I still haven't seen it, but I, I feel like it's one of these films that... Everyone who has seen it seems to be absolutely evangelical about it. So, tell us more. It's kind of a weird movie. It's simply, it's a series of incidents where a donkey is, he's with a, I'm assuming it's a, hey, I don't know anything about donkey kind. I'm really showing my ignorance. But he starts in a circus and he's liberated by uh, government lackeys who are very proud of the fact that they've liberated these animals from the circus, but they don't really give rats ass one way or another about the welfare of the donkey so it's just a series of incidents after that where the donkey goes across Europe all beautifully photographed um, surprisingly metal a surprising number of laser shows in there too but it's just <laughs> it's just sort of about this donkey living life and Aww. that's the best reaction you can have to it because I don't want to say how it ends because it's one of those it cuts yep. to black and oh Oh, I'm really sad now. That's ruined me, dear. And it just gets so much done in 80 minutes. It's just, it's a lovely movie. If you like animals, I I, I would recommend it, but I also wouldn't. It's one of those... Is it? Is it like Okja? Am I, am I going to be temporarily no. you know, vegetarian for a week? No, afterwards? it's not like Okja. No. Good. I mean, donkeys are adorable creatures, so it'll help if you, you already believe that. Yeah. I just, I just can't watch anything with animals in. I get too attached to them. Um, so yeah, we, I, my husband despairs because we can't watch Attenborough together because they go, oh look, look at this, <laughs> oh no, oh no, they're, you know, look at this really cute, brutal, little, brutal, yeah, they kill yeah, it in three yeah. seconds, yeah, look at this really cute little. I remember the one that I did watch. She's like, look at this really cute little penguin, you know, he's just been born and that his parents haven't returned. 
he will starve if he doesn't eat in the next two hours. And then, like, we could intervene, but we actually can't intervene. Um, so, yeah, it's not for me. I'm delighted to say we've got something that I can actually talk about next, uh, because <laughs> this is this is an entry on my list that I know uh, leaves someone else here shares. It's uh, Laura Poitras's latest film, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Ah, uh, yeah. This this really knocked me for six when I saw it. It's yeah. it's it's it feels always pretentious when you talk about a film that's like essential, vital, like important. But like this really is. Um, it's to do with the Sackler family, who I don't know a huge amount about. Um, uh, who effectively were uh, this I guess conglomeration who uh, marketed. Uh, well, they've got their money through marketing a Valium, and then have since gone to other sort of opioid drugs and mm. uh which uh resulted in a lot of deaths and uh this but there uh, probably most people recognize na- recognize their names from their uh, associated with numerous art galleries they fund a lot of art galleries like the met and the guggenheim and the national portrait gallery and so this film is about that but it's also sort of a biopic about uh nan golding who was his photographer uh who was working at the time and was and was and had suffered uh drug addiction because of these open as well so it's about her life as well but it's also about art as protest so you're seeing these yeah. protests of uh, in like, well, a few a few years ago um of them trying to remove the sackler names from these museums and for them to actually sort of you know take some sort of ownerships for the deaths that they uh, caused and it's just it's just absolutely riveting because it's it's dealing with all these themes but you don't really feel lost or overwhelmed it's it's very skillfully done um and nan Goldig is as a figure just as a, another person is just so what a so hero yeah fa- yeah absolutely fascinating just leading the charge on this and it's and this is extraordinary seeing i think of um when the Sackler family finally have they have to listen to the witness testimonies of people who lost people because of their drugs and it's really strangely horrifying seeing just seeing these corporate people having to listen to the real world impacts and seemingly given no expression I and mean, it's very hard to read of like are they even taking this in is this who is this for it's 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 got a lot lot in it and I, yeah it's on iplay at the moment and um so no one's got any excuse not to watch it it's it's absolutely absolutely brilliant really not yeah I, I completely agree with you i think it's an astonishingly good film it does feel like a sort of classic revenge movie you know they <laughs> left her for dead and now she's out for payback <laughs> except you know, this all happened it's in, and it happens as poitras is filming it you know she is very experienced yeah. at going undercover with activist groups she's done it with WikiLeaks. she did mm. the, the documentary about edward snowden and this has all the kind of cloak and dagger stuff mm-hmm. from that but in an art world context it's absolutely incredible i think yeah yeah yes it is always also yeah very good as well yes mm. uh we should round off this month then uh with some men talking about women talking <laughs> <laughs> Is there any point? Is there any point for it? <laughs> yes, I've made this sound like a bad idea. I know. <laughs> Let's just leave it there. Uh, so this one was one of my choices. Um, I watched, well, I pretty much caught up with it because it was Best Picture nominated and I was like, well, I should see what I can. And this one just absolutely blew me away. I mean, it brought to mind 12 Angry Men for me in how it had such 
thought-provoking and gripping discussions through the scenes of these characters, well, talking in delivering such cinematic ways. And it really helps that you got so many powerhouse performers bringing this alive. And it's an exemplary work of these women who are trying to decide what's the best action for them in the wake of rampant sexual abuse from the men of their colony. And it's really fascinating to see how they try to reconcile their faith with the horrific events because they're told the only way you can get in heaven is if you forgive these men while also understanding how regressive such ideals are to allow such actions operated in silence but also delivers the need to challenge authority and grapples with the impact of their potential a- actions i thought it was phenomenal stuff and my goodness sarah polly is such a phenomenal filmmaker i mean i know awards are essentially pointless uh, at the end of the day but how did this not get a couple of acting oscars it's such a phenomenal work and did anyone else see it yep yeah this um and i you know largely agree with what you said i think it's um it's it's a film that manages to be muted yet dynamic um, it's hard hitting. Sometimes it's harrowing, as you know, it should be. It's pointed. It's also very relevant um, as it talks about you know these institutional dangers. It also talks about solidarity and the need to challenge authority, which is why I say it's you know relevant. That is, okay, it may be specifically about, I mean, it's in, I think inspired by actual events um of you know women being abused within this within a particular commune, but the need to challenge authority has rarely been more apparent. So I think that uh, many of us could take inspiration from women talking. And it's a, and even if we don't take inspiration from it, we can certainly, it's a really powerful, um, engaging way to spend a couple of hours, you know, and as, as Sarah Polly said, when I think she picked up the Oscar for adapted screenplay, such a, uh, so unexpected, that women talking could get this sort of this much attention and indeed an award. So yeah, good for her and good for everyone involved. So we're going into March uh, with the adventures of someone who, in my opinion, should have got over that thing with his dog by now. It's John Wick <laughs> Chapter Four. John Wick Chapter Four. We also saw it together. I mean, look, argue we did. It was amazing. Arguably, arguably, it's far too long. It's far too long. And there is a real dip in the middle where things just go on a little bit forever. But it's just amazing. You've got a Skarsgård as a villain in the most extraordinarily beautiful bespoke suits. You've And then you've just got Keanu Reeves just wilding all over Europe. I mean, all the action sequences there. Is it the Arc de Triomphe where he's driving? You've got the insane dragon breath gun sequence which you know tops anything from any video game and then you have the stair sequence which is also i think one of the funniest scenes of the year i mean Mm. just in terms of the the ridiculousness of the slapstick of him getting almost to the top and then routinely being kicked all the way down again it's just very 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 funny i didn't mind i i I didn't mind the pacing um but then you know i can never have enough keanu i think it's a nice way to end the series i know that lions get a desperate for a fifth film but i feel like this is how they 
have to end it and how they should end it. Is it though? No, not really. I mean, it feels like it should be, which is why I, uh, which is why I loved it so much. Actually, it completely uh, took me aback. I've always been a big fan of the John Wick franchise, um, two being my favorite one because it's a you know terrific whirlpool of uh, rules and regulations <laughs> that motivate action movies to just keep going. Um, I thought three sort of got a bit more mired in that and just went around in a big old circle. But this one was just like the fireworks factory for me. Uh, three hours almost of action sequences that probably go on for two to three beats longer than they probably should. <laughs> but that's fine. Uh, I actually think that this is the most entertaining time I had in the cinema this year. Uh, just very, very well uh, mounted action with confidence, passion, swagger. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, sure. It's not really about the dog anymore. It's about <laughs> sorting out your affairs before you die and not having anything to owe to anyone. And I think I found that like weirdly quite powerful. Chad Stahelski has proved himself as a stunt performer turned director with this series of films let's see what else he can do i don't want the poor guy to just be making yeah. like john wick 700 in you know a number of years let's let him do like david leach did after the first one and go out and and show what else he can do because the sequences in this are insane you know there's the japan one with you know Keanu's yeah. fighting yeah, with, the, with nunchucks uh you know you don't see nunchucks in like mainstream cinema it's it, unless it's a turtles movie yeah. uh so yeah it's that the art of triumph is frogger come to life there's little references to all of Keanu's work like during that sequence there's a bus that nearly hits him that looks suspiciously like the one from speed um so yeah it's it's a great good way yeah it's well it's Keanu I was obviously gonna <laughs> I was obviously gonna pick it up um but yeah it's a great way to send John Wick off and it was it was yeah, a lot of fun and yeah um Bill Sarsgaard is just fantastic as the marquee so good yeah and also the um the the stunt guy whose name I'm sure you will know that gets to have the full-on fight sequence with him in the the club where he got to, uh, Scott. no, I know. I'm gonna have to look him up now. Yes, Atkins. Scott. Yes, Scott Atkins. Yes, Scott Atkins in, in yes. a big old fat suit. And I love, yes, and I love that he got that little moment to shine to create that character instead of just being henchman number five or something. He got yeah. to kind of come up front a little bit more, which is obviously what Chad Stileski is all about. And then he got to showcase that character. People really fell in love with him. It was... You know, behind all of the obvious kind of, you know, heroic bloodshed antics and, you know, comic book lunacy, this one basically has uh, Kingpin and Daredevil in it as well, uh, with Scott Adkins' big um, killer Harkan and uh, Donnie Yen's Kane. Haha, ha, appropriately named because he has a cane that he kills people with. Um, yeah, just just terrific stuff. Um, did anybody else enjoy this as much as me? I mean, that's a high <laughs> bar, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Do not in my top ten, but I did really like this one. It's I always appreciate an action film where they take such talented performers. Um, such as Donnie Yen, Eco Ace, people like that, and they don't butcher them in the edit. 
they actually mm-hmm. let their fury fly as it should and not just to accommodate so they can fight Mark Wahlberg without visibly killing him or something. <laughs> and... It's got beautiful cinematography in it the whole way through as well. Absolutely. And I, I love that it the way they've ended it, they can pick it up if they want to or they can leave it be. I agree that they should probably leave it be. Um, the spin-off series didn't do tremendously well. Terrible. I think it's it's a good place to 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 just gently leave it before it becomes a sort of a pale shadow of itself. But I'm it's it definitely went out in style. It shines brightly for a short time rather than fade out into yes, definitely whatever nonsense. Um, I just think physically, Keanu probably can't do another one also as well. He does take a kick in in this one especially. Yeah. I just, I thought it was pretty damn good. And you know what? Best use of stairs in a film I've seen all year. Oh, incredible stuff. <laughs> the gag that ends that uh, stair sequence as well. It was one of the hardest laughs that I've had out of this year. I did. It's not the funniest film I've seen this year because that would be a bit strange, but definitely one of the hardest <laughs>, laughs uh, that I've had, certainly. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, keeping it with the action, but at a completely different end of the spectrum is probably one of the bigger shock of the years, uh, Dungeon and Dragon. Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. I should say. I love that film so much. So, yes, Dungeons and Dragons, best Chris, Chris Pine. Yes. Uh, appearing in this very silly, very fun. It's written and directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, who did one of my favourite films of all time, Game Night, which is superb. Yeah. They also did the quite underrated uh a vacation remake which is very silly not that good but has some incredibly surreal moments in it and uh, john francis daly was also sweets in uh bones for years as well before they unceremoniously uh wrote him out but yeah it's dungeons and dragons it's just huge fun you've got chris pine and michelle rodriguez as a sort of uh he's he was a good guy and then he turns to petty theft after his wife unceremoniously dies in a unfortunate let's provide motivation for the hero incident but then they raise they raise this little girl together and it's adorable and then we've got Hugh Grant in his uh much more fun in his villain mode as uh somebody who basically screws them over and then the plot starts with them effectively escaping from prison and getting back to his daughter and I just, I mean, I don't, I mean, the my only real uh, interaction with Dungeons and Dragons was one day when I went to a local meetup and came back with a screaming migraine. <laughs> I did watch the show as a kid. I'm fairly sure I'd be useless in it. One of the reasons that I love it so much is that one of the characters is so spectacularly useless. They have this moment where he's like, so you're going to listen to me and don't go on the bridge. And now he's already stepped on the bridge because that's precisely what I would do too. Let's just let's just do this. Let's not yeah. listen to, you know, the careful plan. We've got Reggie, uh, the gentleman from Bridgerton, as the world's most po-faced paladin, who is very, very funny. And, I yeah, I love it. Hugh Grant is spectacular in it. He's just uh, very foppishly evil and utterly unapologetic about it. Chris Pine is funny and he sings and he's very, very charming. It has a surprise cameo that goes surprisingly hard. It doesn't need to at all. It's a little one-off thing from someone you wouldn't expect to be in it, which I won't spoil if you haven't seen it. But there isn't a throwaway thing at all. It's like some real heart to it. 
And I liked that the, the Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez's characters didn't fall in love and get together because it's not like that. That's not the the bonds of their relationship. And I mean, it didn't do well, sadly. I know it's on Paramount Plus. It was sort of one of these films that it's a shame. It's almost well. I feel like now we're almost producing films just for content, really. This had a minimal theatrical window, and it keeps being pictured in all the duds of the year rounds up, which is a real shame because it's good. It's really good. It's really good. Yeah. It's really good. It's really sweet. It's very, very funny. Uh, it's on Paramount Plus. I don't know how many people have that. Again, I feel like that doesn't... I mean, we've just basically reinvented the concept of basic cable and that we're now all paying so much money for individual streamers. It's insanity. Yeah. Uh, but... It is good, and if people are listening, I would definitely urge them to go grab it and, and check it out because it's one of those films that I feel like it kind of came into the cinemas and then died without much fanfare. It's just released at that kind of time of year when people didn't necessarily, you know, it didn't have much of a, a marketing campaign. Well, it had Chris Pine laughing at memes, which he seems to enjoy enormously. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was it was... It was huge fun, and it's such a lovely couple of hours of entertainment. Yeah. And Hugh Grant is just feeling himself now he gets to be bad. He's Absolutely. definitely better than when he was being all foppish and charming. Now he's just foppish and charming and incredibly evil. Yeah. And I love that for him. And yes, the ending's all a little bit pew, 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 CGI nonsense, but it does have Pine anchoring every single second of it, yeah. and... Just made me sad that we're probably not going to get another Star Trek with him, really, which is a pity, mm. um, because I think he is phenomenal. Um, less fun is Kat's uh, first pure pick, um, Infinity Pool, also from March. <laughs> fun. It's, you know, there's happy people in it for some of it. Um, yeah, so <laughs> Infinity Pool is the third film from uh, Brandon, son of David Cronenberg. Um, so he did Antiviral and Possessor. Uh, Infinity Pool is it's very different, but has a lot of the explores a lot of the same themes of like identity and and the class divide. And it's basically we've got another Skarsgård this time. Uh, Alex he goes on holiday to this like really uh, this really posh place on an island where you can't leave basically if you leave the confines of this really nice place you're going to get like killed uh and he meets uh mia goth uh mia goth character and she takes them on an excursion somebody ends up dead they end up in trouble with the police and then things get really weird and we're into body horror territory and it's just it's a lot of film there's there's a lot that you know should be saved for viewing uh i think you know there was two versions of this film because america doesn't like sex in films so uh they had uh a cut and uncut version and uh the the brits we were afforded the uncut version so i would make sure that you check out that if you want to see uh Full stars guard, uh, I think would be the way to phrase it. But it's just yes. like, Mia Goth is just living her best life, just screaming manically at at poor Alex for yeah, a long time. I, I mean, I love her, but I, to be, I will be honest, she did slightly irritate me during this. I mean, look, you can't go wrong with a scars guard in a dog collar. You know, there is no wrong there. <laughs> 
I, I met him for about 30 seconds at Tribeca when he was there to promote the, another film he was in this year, which is Michael Shannon's directorial debut. And uh, he is ridiculously tall and every single person was just yelling infinity pool at him. It was very, very funny. <laughs> he had to almost bend down in half to take a selfie with me. He is that big. But he's just he's just very charming and very exactly as you would expect in real life. Um I want to see the the pics that he sent Brandon Cronenberg to get a certain prosthetic made. That was very entertaining. Uh, I enjoyed it. I I enjoyed Possessor more, but Infinity Pool is is uh, yeah. yeah, it's certainly one that people, if they're if they're a fan of Scars of Alexander Skarsgård, they should go and check out. Yeah, he really marked himself out from his dad as well. I will say that Brandon in this one. Yeah. It feels very much. The others felt like they were sort of David Cronenberg light, but this feels full fast, Brandon. I also think in a weird way this is his most accessible film because I think that Antiviral and Possessor both go really hard on, especially Possessor, on like the sort of the sci-fi angles and, you know, inside yeah. other bodies and other brains and things. And I think that can be a lot for a casual viewer, whereas I think Infinity Pool, you know, they can, even if they don't fully engage and understand what's happening beneath the surface, they can enjoy Mirgoth being silly and Sarsgaard in a in a dog collar. So I kind of feel like it, in an odd way, it is still accessible. Yeah. I can see that. Um, keeping the Mirgoth connection going is a pick that I shared with Andy. Um, and one of the, probably there's a lot of examples that don't make the list, but it's one of the few that do. Uh, it was released last year, a lot of lists last year. Only came out, I think it, yeah, March this year. So we really got to learn that one, but uh, Ty West's Pearl. It's so wild with the list because I feel like that's so ancient now and yet it was literally just out this year. Yeah. It's crazy how things get so delayed here. Um, it, 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 yeah, I, I loved it. It's a great movie. Um, you're not saying it, it's basically the prequel to the character who starred in the Ty West's original of this trilogy. I don't know what he's calling this trilogy, so it's just the Pearl trilogy, I guess. I think they call it the Maxine trilogy. Uh, I yeah. think it's, it's all focused around Maxine. Well, it's about the the antagonist of the first movie and her backstory, Pearl. So we're talking sort of pre-post-war era, lots of repressed small town um, themes. Uh, themes have been um, looking after aging and ailing parents and her sort of coming out and finding herself, which includes a lot of extracurricular activities, I guess, in cornrows and murdering people it's just more of a psychosexual john waters movie than a straight down the line uh slasher and i don't really like slashers i like something with a little just to clarify on that it's just the kind of formulaic there's not much to them but this i think it's got some sort of uh thought going into what's happening and what's who the characters are well, it's all coloured like a, like a golden Hollywood film. Mm. I mean, the, the entire colour palette is stolen uh, very purposefully from The Wizard of Oz and she has all the various different very bright outfits. You've got the iconic, uh, beautiful red dress that she wears. You've got, obviously, the I was going to be a star sequence, which you yeah. know is going to be featured in drag routines for years to come. <laughs> uh, I think, has the projectionist just become... Clark Kent? Yes. I think he has, yes. So the projectionist who is in it for a brief time and very foolishly enters Pearl Zambit is the new uh, Clark Kent chosen by James Gunn. 
Yeah, he's great. I mean, he doesn't make much of Nobody really makes much of a sort of impression here apart from yeah, her. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is entirely centred around Mia Goth. I think X is the superior movie. That's fine. I think it's much more interesting. But uh, I think I think Pearl is great. And I love that they just kind of sprang it on. Oh, by the way, yeah, you enjoyed X. Oh, we've already filmed this. Please enjoy. It's a pretty great one-two we'll punch, soon. which is putting a lot of the pressure on Maxine, yeah. which is coming out later this year. Well, next year, I should say. Sorry. Yeah, but Maxine's got all of it going for it. So what, what will it be? It'll be like late 70s, early 80s. 80s, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 80s set, yeah. I mean, it's the cast list is off the chain. And I am sure that Mia Goth, as Kat said earlier, will be living her very best life. So yes. it will be great to watch. So I've never been that much of a Ty West fan previously. X got me a little bit further. And then I saw Pearl and I thought, yeah, fair play. This is fantastic. And literally everything I'd heard about Mia Goth's performance was completely true, I thought. Yeah, I think I I preferred this to X. I I I'm I, I'm the I I was not that fan of X. Um, I think the Mia the Mia Goth co-wrote the script as well. I think helps a lot. I think I preferred the performance in Infinity Pool just because that was a more uh, uh, entertaining performance. But this is arguably Crazy. a better one. <laughs> Someone has to do it. <laughs> I, I I wake up during the night um, and I sometimes what, what, where is she? <laughs> 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 oh, so much fun! Um, but she's, but well, it's 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 a really solid sort of melodrama sort. It's not that much of a horror, but it's got a bit of horror, in, I guess towards the end. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm hyped for Maxine, so I guess that's that's got a cap or something. I enjoyed uh, Pearl immensely. I remember seeing one description of it. Maybe it was even from the director um, that it's like um, Carrie meets the Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I think that sums it up quite nicely. Um, it's knowing, it's sly, it's gory, it's witty. It is, I think, in some ways, it's simultaneously a revenge tale and a redemption tale, kind of a form of self-redemption, I guess. Um, and I, w- I always enjoy a, a story of showing the dangers of repression. It's like, well, if you uh, if you repress, oh, woe betide you if that thing gets un repressed <laughs> while also showing kind of the dangers of expectations um and to present somebody who is so simultaneously um engaging and kind of adorable and also fucking terrifying <laughs> is, yes. is is quite an accomplishment both in the part of ty west and indeed mia goth and uh i'll never look at a scarecrow again like, <laughs> like the same way. <laughs> I'm like, I I being in the um, in the X camp rather than the Pearl camp. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I I thought X was uh, quite a remarkably uh, well done, straightforward slasher film. Uh, mm. Sly enough to you know uh, give some real subversive uh, gags in there, and um, I just found Pearl to be a bit of a strange exercise in reverse engineering the psychology of uh, a character that I found much more interesting actually in uh, in X. I thought giving a role this, you know, body count previous to this sort of robbed the character a little bit of the the real sadness of, of that repression getting to, you know, 95 years old or however old she is uh, in X. I, I just don't really think that there's two films in that character, but I did 
think that Mia Goth was very good, probably better in Pearl than in X. But overall, I I did uh, prefer X as a as a film as a whole. I'd say it is quite weird that it gets us to spend a whole film sympathising with this character, even though in the back of your head you're thinking. Oh yeah, she gets a head run over in the next one, doesn't she? You know, but yeah. spoilers. <laughs> but she's a star. She absolutely is a star too. Yeah, incredible. I'm mad that they did this just because they had to stay in a location because of COVID, basically, and they thought, yeah. well, let's just make another film." <laughs> so that's incredible. Creative no merits. The mind's actually yeah. pretty good, good as well. Um. Closing out March is the first of many surprise entries. Um, Scream 6, Kim picked that one. I'll, I didn't like it, so... Ooh, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. So basically, it's just Ghostface, Ghostface takes Manhattan is all you really need to know. Yeah. Um, it's cruel. It's got some... It's much... Goes much, much harder than the last few. It's basically the cruelty of the Drew Barrymore sequence at the beginning of the first scream multiplied by 20 and continued on throughout there is a sequence where they have to climb between new york high rises across a very uh dodgy ladder that is genuinely horribly upsetting um by this point ortega is already feeling a little bit wasted in the sister role uh i I will be honest, even before the the recent controversy, I was never that big a fan of Melissa Barrera in the lead. I feel that, uh, I feel it goes a little bit too heavy on Sam and the flashbacks with Billy and everything. I feel like we could have, there needs to be more strings to her personality than just she's the daughter of a serial killer. But it was... I thought it was good. I thought it was very strong. Um, they have completely managed to screw up the third one in a quite extraordinary way. I have no idea how you can uh, announce a new film when you didn't have any of the cast locked in. They've dropped Melissa Barrera for some fairly tenuous comments. It seems all a bit ridiculous. It's very sad that, as it seems, the Scream franchise at the moment, unless they completely reboot it, Appears to be temporarily dead with no director and no cast. I think the problem for me is I picked the ghost face killer the first time that they were on screen. Um, and I was really hoping against hope. I've got to be honest, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. So that's so that's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I picked them straight away and I just spent the whole film going, well, maybe it won't be. Maybe like they're setting them up to be really obvious and then it'll actually, oh, but no. then they didn't. And so I was, I was a little disheartened and disappointed when it was who it was. But that's, that's the thing that's just because I've watched so many of these things that like really hard to surprise me these days. The killers were weak. The killers were weak compared to the killers in the previous one, uh, which we have to we have to keep being vague in case there's someone who hasn't watched it. But yes, the killers were were a poor choice this time around. I felt like it would have been much more interesting. Yeah. It it was fine. It was the previous one was stronger. I liked the New York setting. I liked how sequences of it were very very brutal. The rules of a requel were already getting a little bit tired because there's no such thing as a requel sequel, so it's, it's pushing it just a tad. But it's it's a shame where it's ended up. I am sure that being Hollywood, give it six months, it will be revamped and back anew. 
But it, uh, if this is the final one, not a bad one to go out on. Certainly not terrible, but perhaps not as strong as Scream 5. Yeah. Um, moving into April, this was one of Liz's picks. Uh, the screen life, stroke, found footage, however you want to define it. Um, missing. I'm really sorry I haven't seen it. I have. This is so... It, go oh, for so it. It's, um, it's the sort of follow-up in a way to searching. Um yeah, I've seen searching. Yeah. Searching's great. Uh and it's it's kind of sort of the same story-ish again in a way. So it's uh Storm Reed is a teenage girl who gets left at home uh for the weekend while her mum and new boyfriend go to Mexico uh for the weekend and then uh teenage girl is meant to go and collect mum from airport, turns up late, mum's not there, mum's not at home. Days later, mum's still not back. And so she sets about her own uh, exploration online to try and find out what happened to her mum, you know, hacks into her emails and her bank and bank details and stuff and tries to trace trace it. So it is it all screen life? Yeah, it's all so it's it all, all screen life yeah. like like with searching. So she's she's on her laptop, she's FaceTiming her friends, talking about, you know, talking about what's happening yeah. and stuff. It's it's a lot of fun. It's it's set in the same world as Searching. So the film opens with the character watching a Netflix documentary about the story of Searching, which is a nice way to tie them tie them together. Um and yeah, it's a really it's, yeah, it's a really easy sort of like popcorn popcorn film. It's it's a nice, easy, a nice, easy watch. Yes. Um little less popcorn. Well, it is for horror fans, but it's one of these occasions, the next movie, where horror fans went, that's pretty cool, and people who aren't seasoned horror fans went, oh my god, that's disgusting, that film's sick filth, and that's Evil Dead Rise, which took the violence even further than any previous Evil Dead had up to this point. I mean, I'm so cheerfully jaded that I don't actually recall it being tremendously violent. I think it's very good. Oh, in yeah, terms I've, of... I've heard that, like the stance from non-horror fans and this uh, this is just nihilistic <laughs> nastiness. And I thought, really, okay. Yeah. So, Evil 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 Dead Rise has uh, it's a, a lovely family in a in a property that is due to be demolished. There is an earthquake, and the son finds a series of recordings stashed away in what would have been a bank vault, which the property that they are living in has been built on top of. He then unwisely chooses to uh, both play the the recordings whilst of uh, looking at the book, which is, of course, the Necronomicon, and things go very, very badly. You have Bruce Campbell doing a very brief cameo on the recording as a priest telling them to stop playing it. And then, yes, the the little evil rises and it uh, takes over Alyssa Sutherland's character, who is the mother who very sadly dies in the lift and then comes back as the deadite version of herself. And it's fascinating. You've got this theme of motherhood throughout it and the perversion of motherhood because her sister has just found out that she's pregnant and is furious about it so you have the kind of the instincts there you have the deadite mum performing this perversion of motherhood and that the first thing she does is to 
going you know, go back to this very domestic scene of caring for the kids and providing them with lunch with the eggs and everything else while simultaneously saying that she cannot wait to see what their insides look like. And it just gets bleaker from there. The crowd that doesn't like kids to be killed in horror movies probably shouldn't watch this one nope. because it gets bleaker by the second. We have legs being grated with cheese graters. We have, uh, yeah, skulls through, uh, sort of great big spikes through through the skull. It's it it's pretty uh, hardcore. And what I like is it's it's Lee Cronin and he keeps. There's a hor- horrifying sense of dread in the in the cold open, which it then circles back to at the end, which is a completely different group of people vacationing uh, at a lake, and we come full circle on that at the end. So this, so you're already feeling this horrendous dread by the time we even focus on this lovely, lovely, sweet family all together enjoying kind of their last week in their apartment. And he keeps it quick. He keeps it taut. It's nasty. There's no flab anywhere on this i don't feel like you missed bruce campbell i mean in the previous in the previous 2013 one i didn't care for it i felt it focused so much on the addiction angle and i didn't care for the lead so that by the time the deadite showed up i was just like can we just get bruce campbell here and just lighten this up a bit but i felt in this one because it was so tonally completely different you weren't waiting for him you didn't feel the absence of ash it was this entirely different thing and then by the time it turns into a sort of a multi-limbed deadite from the thing, which is just horrifying and it's going after her, it's uh, it's horrifying. But to me, it was the intri- it was the element of you know maternal instincts and uh, you know the deadite mum trying to sing to the daughter to let her in. It's very clever in the way it plays through motherhood throughout. I thought. Yeah, you can't really add more to that. I mean, I loved it too. The only thing I'll add, it's the only movie where you can have Chekhov's wood chipper. Chose the wood chipper in Act 1. Yes. you got to yep. use it. That's Someone true. has to go through with that wood chipper. And Yep. No, that's absolutely right. If it's going to be there, it's got to, it's going to be come into play. So, as you know from Fargo, wood chippers are not a good thing, and it definitely comes into play. Yeah. It was great. It was, uh, I would like to see him do another one. I think it's fantastic. He can go anywhere. And it was properly nasty, which is what I liked. Yeah, I mean, title yeah. card of the year. Absolutely. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Beautiful, beautiful imagery. Very good. We are going all over the map with our choices for this month. And I think we're not going to get geographically much further than Pacifiction, uh, the new film by the unclassifiable Albert Sever. I saw this, and as is my general response to Albert Sever films, I, I sort of finished and thought, I don't know if I liked that or not, but I know at least one of you had uh, had a lot stronger uh, feeling about it than I did. Yeah, this was me. I have this very high up on my list. Um, yeah, absolutely loved it. I um, I actually only watched this about a week ago because it was in my sort of catch-up. Mm. Um, it I never came... Well, I think it came... I know they played it in Sheffield, which is about an hour from me, but they didn't play it where I live, and I was on holiday when it screened in Sheffield. So it was very difficult to see the cinema, which I think didn't help um, the fact that I never saw it the first time around. Um, but yeah, really good. Um, I'm a big fan of Thomas Pynchon, and I think this is probably the only film I've seen, apart from, you know, you obviously there's, there's a Pynchon adaptation, which I'm not going to include because that's 
going to <laughs> that's obviously going to be a bit like Thomas Pynchon but yeah, we. Um, it's the only film I've seen that I would really say captures that Thomas Pynchon conspiracy uh, weirdness obtuseness mixture of high art low art um, kind of weird blend um, as well as this um, I just think it's fantastic it looks beautiful um, it has a very interesting story um, it's, it's incredibly glacial like there's not really much going on in terms of the story doesn't actually go very fast or very far, but um, it's never boring. It's a very funny film. Actually, probably probably the funniest, My, you know, if I would say, out of all the 10 films I've picked, I think this is probably the funniest outside of one, which is actually a comedy. Um, I don't think this has been marketed as a comedy, but um, it's very funny. Um, yeah, it's really good. I, I don't know if I would recommend it to everyone. It's, you know, it's like three hours long almost and hasn't really got much story, but... I think anyone who's into Thomas Pynchon would, would owes himself to see this film because I think it takes a lot from Pynchon, whether or not that's by Albert Serra's own. Um, I don't know if he's intentionally making a film that's like Pynchon, yeah. but I think the result is very much a film that's like Pynchon. And I think that ben, Benoit Magamel, I don't know if that's how you mm-hmm. say his name, um, is, is incredibly funny, incredibly good. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for any film that has a very low stakes conspiracy theory wrapped around it. <laughs> where there's, it's like a sort of, uh, you don't really know if anyone even cares about it. It's like sort of this cryptic thing no one can really get their heads on. So yeah, really loved it. And uh, also on movie, actually. Another one that's on movie. So I think basically half the films I've picked are on movies. So. <laughs> um, yeah, very good. Let's go somewhere colder. Uh, let's go to Iceland uh, because Godland was also released this month. I really loved Godland. Um, For those who don't know what it is, uh, it's a Herzogian tale of this Danish priest who's played by Elliot Crossethover. He is sent on a mission to consecrate a church along the coast of Iceland. Um, The journey is going smoothly by boat, at least, but he decides to get off a little bit early and then walk cross-country with a 10-foot cross so he can absorb the majesty of the landscape. Of course, things do go a little bit wrong um, once uh, the winter sets in, much to the chagrin of his Icelandic guide Ragnar, who is played by the fantastic uh, Ingvar E. Sigurdsson, who is the he-witch in The Northman. Um, Uh It mixes quite a lot of uh, spirituality and the awesomeness of, of nature, um so there's often this tension between like the presence and the absence of god in like the same image um it definitely made me feel like there is simultaneously everything out there and nothing out there as well i think there's a lot of uh, there will be blood in there as well it's got this weedy priest central character who's trying to make his mark on this on this desolate land but it is First and foremost, a, a debt is owed to Werner Herzog uh, because it's a, a tale of a madman trying to take on nature with, with dire, dire consequences. But I do think that um, the director, Kalino uh, Palmerson, uh, is a good enough filmmaker in his own right because um, it is a completely unconventional epic that does, again, hold this tension between uh, language and belief, um, which get in the way of, of things where you know people's common cause uh, should be the same. I think as well. Uh, is it on movie? I think it might be. Or at least, no, BFI player, I believe. Um, so I think it will sing on the small screen as, as well as it did on the big screen. Really love Godland. 
I haven't seen that one, but I, I don't think I've seen a bad Icelandic film. For some reason, they're all bangers. <laughs> well, if they get out from over there, all the way over to here, then they must be all right. It's very true. <laughs> yeah. Let's stick with an environmental theme, because you've also got, uh, in April, the film How to Blow Up a Pipeline. This is great, although whenever I tell anyone I'm going to see a film called this, they would give me a suspicious glance. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're on a watch list, Mike. Yeah, especially my Muslim friends, like, I could never watch that film. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's true. Um, it's, so it's sort of it's it's an interesting. To, and it's a fictional story, but it's inspired by the non-fiction book How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is effectively a sort of uh, manifesto in the sense of uh, what if we actually sort of took action against all the companies that are causing the environmental problems. And so it follows a group of people who decide who organize how to blow a pipeline. Um, it's directed by the guy who uh, did Cam, the Netflix sort of doppelganger horror from a few years ago and um he's got two for two for me this is a really tense movie because because it's not while it's got its foot in reality um and still with real world issues it's obviously fictional so you don't know is that are they just gonna blow themselves up um and it sort of just goes through sort of like painstaking detail of how they're actually going to do it and it's it's so it's it is uh it's definitely got a political uh point of view um and it's 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 it uh but it's just a really well done thriller with some, uh, you know, you care about the characters. And again, you, there's so many times you just think, oh, they're just going to blow themselves up, aren't they? And you don't know if it's going to work. And, and the debate as well of like, what will this actually achieve? So it's, it, it really balances, I think, the sort of genre of it and also the political conversation without feeling too bogged down in it. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting film. I got about halfway through it this week um, as part of my catch-up, and I just did not have time to finish it. But I was uh, enjoying it quite a lot. Structurally quite bold, I thought, while also keeping up the pace mm. in like a very Safdie-esque kind of way. I, I, yeah. I don't know if it's just because the score reminded me quite a lot of uh, One of Tricks Point Never. But um, yeah, definitely got that same sort of grimy, gritty, fast pace to it that the Safdie Brothers movies have. Excited to finish it. Uh, I my failure to do any research to this means that I don't know if this is going to carry on the environmental theme or not. But hey, let's throw it open to the floor and see. What about this film, River? Oh, the um, Junta Yamaguchi film. Ooh. Probably yes. <laughs> uh, yes. So this is a. Well, it's not really environmental, but uh, nice try, nice try. No, <laughs> it's it's another kind of. Um, I, I actually I think this is the the, the smallest uh, film on my list, uh, but it's it's not any worse for it. It's a time loop comedy um, set in this really lovely little Japanese hotel um, on this uh, in this mountainside town. And um, it's from the director of a film from 2020 called Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, which is, again, another two-minute time loop comedy. So I think this guy has his... Uh, He's got his niche. Uh, has his niche. Very nicely uh, pin, uh, pinpointed there. Um, so, yes, basically, um, the hotel workers uh, basically find themselves in a two-minute time loop, which is shot in one long, continuous uh, tracking shot from different starting points. Um, and it's basically them trying to 
uh, a keep the guests calm before they actually realize what's going on, why their their food bowls never go down, why they can't get out of the sauna, etc. Um, and then also trying to stop the time loop itself. It's really lovely. Um, I would highly, highly recommend this. I would also highly recommend Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes as well. Uh, but both are going to be available um, through Third Window Films. So I think that River is coming out in the new year on a, uh, a lovely Blu-ray. Um, but yes, you've got a lovely double bill right there made by uh, a filmmaker who's just incredibly resourceful, uh, shoots it all on an iPhone with uh, deftness and precision and fluidity. And uh, I had a wonderful time with River. Lovely. Okay. <laughs> um, so on to much, much, much shakier waters. But the people who loved it, loved it. The people who don't, well, there's more of them. We'll just say that. Um, Andy's first pick, um, exclusive pick, we'll say, is The Outwaters. I hated that film. That's what I was suggesting. <laughs> the problem with The Outwaters to me is that it is 30 minutes of mumblecore and then an hour of screaming. Hmm. I just like, I like my fan footage. I like some beautiful scenes in it. For me, there needs to be more of a coalescent story. I need to feel like it's going somewhere. Yeah. This is just a guy going clinically insane. And then chopping his old chap off at the end. Yeah, that, that bit was good, though. I quite enjoyed that bit. <laughs> that bit was fun. It was just, I was, I looked... I looked at my watch, and by the time they actually get to go to the desert, we were on minute 40. Yeah, that's too long. In which we have watched four people who are not the best actors in the world very dully talk about recording a song. Mm. And there's all this stuff about it being, you know, inspired by a mother, based on a mother, but none of this goes anywhere. It's like they decided to do a kind of a... Like the most stereotypical A24 mumblecore hipster thing with a group of people that get together and are going to go and make a music video. And then all of a sudden, everyone just starts screaming and dying, which sounds way more fun than it is. Yeah. It was not for me. The problem is, it's part of this wave, really, isn't it? Along with Skinner Marink and Ennies Man, which, if you like it, it's wonderful. If you don't, well, you just heard. I don't have the patience. This is my problem. I don't like Skinner Marink either. It bored me to tears. Yeah, I've said... Like yeah. Those that love it, love yeah, it. Yeah, I said before, I had to... My bathroom doesn't have a window and I had to lock myself in with my phone on the outside of the bathroom door so that I could focus on the film in Skinner Marink because nothing happens and as it well, my phone's right there. I could just text through this and pretend I've watched it. <laughs> um, but I think Andy himself has a bit of a love-hate relationship with Outwaters in that the first time he watched it he hated it but something about it compelled him to go and watch it another two times and now by time three he's into it so but I mean kudos to him because do I'm we, not watching that three do times. Do we think it just brainwashed him? I think so yeah. yeah. Do we think it just brainwashed him? <laughs> do we think there's something in the recording that when he watched it back was like tell everyone this film is amazing because <laughs> there is absolutely no way i kept looking at my watch going how is there still another 45 minutes to go yeah, i can see it's yeah. sort of weird and aloof For... and obscure but i don't think any found footage it's long too no found footage maybe should be over about 95 100 minutes 
No, it needs to be it needs to be short and sharp. No, this is way too long. Yeah. No, not for me. I'm afraid. Um, closing out April is one of my picks. Um, looping back around to what I was saying earlier about British movies, not all needing to be about posh hats and working class struggles. It is polite society. <laughs> Or, as I call it, what if Scott Pilgrim had any characters that I gave a shit about? <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's an interesting description. <laughs> it's very Edgar Wright indebted, but it, it's fortunate in that it is every bit as precise, as funny, and as committed to that particular thing that he finds funny, which is the clash between big genre spectacle and crap British suburbia. It's about two sisters of uh, in an Anglo-Pakistani family, uh, one of whom wants to be a stunt woman, one of whom wants to be an artist. The latter decides that her career isn't going anywhere. Uh, and should settle down and get married. The younger decides that the man she is engaged to marry is a total dickhead and probably evil, and she sets out to use her kung fu abilities to rescue him. And it's just fun. It's by the... I don't know the name of the director, because I've got too many tabs open, and if I open another one, my computer might melt down. <laughs> so it's by the creator of uh, We Are Lady Parts, a rightfully acclaimed sitcom on Channel 4. And what I like about this is it shows a Britain more diverse than our movies give the impression of, and it's also a really fun action movie, which sort of comic bookifies events with its presentation has a little bit of Edgar Wright in there. It's a sort of culture clash joke that never gets old, watching this kind of Hong Kong martial arts comedy style action play out in something that looks like it might be Sir Bitten. Uh, but it has tons of invention despite uh, beyond that. It's, there's a whole middle section where it becomes a heist movie. And I did think, is, is that a bit indulgent? Surely like three or four genres is enough for one movie? Nope, it keeps going for all of it. And Priya Kansara, who plays the lead, is an absolute star. She's funny, she's sympathetic, and she can do a flying, spinning roundhouse kick. <laughs> what more do you need to be a movie star? And everybody's star. Sure. It's a star turn from everybody in this. I just had such a whale of a time watching Play Society. Most fun I had at the movies. Directed by Nida Manzor. Yeah, she's one to keep an eye out. She's very, very good. And Barack Obama just yes. put it on his he list. Did, yes. Which will. Oh, yeah. Which will. And that has an. It sounds silly, but that list has an awful lot of impact. Yeah. So I, I haven't seen it. I've seen the trailer for it. So, but yeah. I suspect that a lot of people will go out and find it now because people do tend to go out and find the films. That he says he's enjoyed. That's really weird. And catch up on he's a he, He's a taste maker. That's 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 yeah. quite. He nice, is. Though. It is. It's like it's it's like Oprah. If if you land on his list, then God bless him. He did uh, he did big up the three films that he's involved in, which includes the Apocalypse one on which just landed on Netflix, which is not very good. But if you do land on his list, people go and go and seek them out. Hmm. Yeah, and polite society is really worth it. I caught it at Sundance and just loved it. It. It is very sort of Scott Pilgrim in in a way, sort of like scenes get broken down. There's like the action, the fight scenes are like round one, round two, and sort of very like video gamey in parts. And it's a lot of fun. It's got a really nice story of sisters at the centre. And as somebody that was raised on gladiators, 
basically, the main character wants to become a stunt woman, like a hero, Eunice Hutha, who was uh, a decorated contestant on Gladiators. So I was just thrilled that finally... That's amazing. Finally, all <laughs> of my years of watching it religiously were rewarded. And, you know, Barack Obama's there championing polite society. Maybe uh, Eunice is going to get her... I think she's still doing stunts because she, she went into stunts. I think, you know, maybe she'll get a bit more work out of it. Yeah. Get her due. That's amazing. Yeah. I caught up with polite society just quite recently. Um, and I was really glad to do so. It's joyously sweet and riotously fun. And as you say, it does this lovely blend of different genres. We've got teenage fears, we've got family ties, we've got culture clash, and we've got martial arts mayhem. And as somebody who was a teenager in the 1990s, I was delighted with the call out to um, Gladiator's champion, uh, Eunice Hot Hart. (laughs) That was like, mm, ah, love that. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just love it. On to uh, May, um, a little bit on the opposite end of the emotional spectrum, one of Liz's picks, It's a Boy is Afraid. That's huge fun. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a, a journey, basically. It's a journey into hell. It's all the various different levels of hell, as far as I can see. It's... Uh, I mean, people didn't seem to to gel with it as much, to the extent that even Ari Aster has come out and said he's been a bit disappointed by the reaction to it. I think it's going to be one of those ones that people are going to rediscover. It's it's hyper-stylized. It's, it's comic as well as tragic. You have Joaquin Phoenix acting his absolute heart out as the lead. You've got... There's a huge uh, animated sequence in the middle of it, which literally is a massive setup for a dick joke, which is the funniest thing imaginable. Okay. It's um, it's incredibly violent and very off-putting. You've got Patti Lapone, who is easily performing one of the most terrifying performances of the year as, like, the world's worst Jewish mother. It's... It's really interesting, but each, each, because he's going on a journey and each layer of the film is another layer of hell, as far as I can see. He's just descending further and further and further into hell. It's a journey film. And I think because it was so hyper stylized and the way that Kat was talking about um, Infinity Pool being accessible, I think this is the opposite. I think people could get their heads around Midsummer. they could get their heads around Hereditary, there are things that they could lock on to, whether it's Tony Collette's speech about that face on your face, or any of the iconography in Midsummer, which, you know, you see, I mean, they're on sheen, for God's sake, people are, you know, wearing the outfits without understanding any of the themes behind it. But I feel in this, it was almost like consciously off-putting, so I feel like people, there wasn't something that anyone could grip onto. I mean, there's a massive dick monster at one point. <laughs> okay. uh, so it's it's hard to get a handle on. It has the single best needle drop of the year. Do not come at me with murder on the dance floor. It's got okay. nothing compared to the Mariah Carey needle drop in this, which is incredible. Doing good, very um, good needle drop. Yeah, it's it's great, but it's I feel like it was too long. That's put and just yeah. wasn't. It's very 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 long, and I just feel it wasn't necessarily made for a cinema going audience. I think it will find its life on on streaming 
I feel it will get a second wind. Yeah, um, this one, um, I thought I was going to hate it. Uh, I'm going to be honest, <laughs> um, because I have not vibed with Ariasta at oh, all in the past. Mm. Uh, I found Hereditary quite dull. Uh, mm. I found Midsummer just a bit exhausting. And uh, I, th- I think the thing that I hated about them both was the fact that the characters are just pawns in this cruel game of plot chess where they can't do anything to uh, escape their terrible fate. Now, the irony, I think, of this one uh, is that Ariasta has completely doubled down on the idea with a character that is so ineffectual so pathetic that there is literally nothing it can do to avoid being crushed by his own mother, his anxieties, the world around him, and whatever horrific nightmares he seemingly brought on himself. Um, I thought, though, this time round, that the level of cruelty really worked when he's going into the mode of what he brands as nightmare comedy, where Joaquin Phoenix's bow, his situation goes from bad to worse, he tries to get home uh, to see his mother, uh, on the date of his father's death, which also, in a quite Freudian bit of irony, happens to be the moment that bull was conceived. <laughs> it is uh, three hours long. It is very, very ill-disciplined, so it's no wonder that it kicked, turned out to be a box office bomb. So we're talking 35 million budget, 11 million, uh, 11 million haul. Uh, and I think it certainly split audiences. Ouch, indeed. I think it certainly split audiences more thoroughly than his first two. But what is here for me is that there was a genuine anxious quality that really did just get me on that kind of visceral level. And I think he's also really stepped up as a uh, as a imaginative filmmaker. And he, all these horrific images feel like stuff that he's tried to get out of his system for a very long time, but just does, hasn't had the money. I don't think you'll get to do anything like this again, so I'm going to treasure it. For what it's worth, it's funny. Like, you're not the first one I've heard who like not been a fan of Ariasta, but this is the one that I know. I, 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 I honestly it's, shocked it's, myself. It does baffle me, but yeah, I don't. Really, I I can't really understand it. But, um, but it's. Uh, I I think I should works. go back yeah, and watch yeah. the other two again. Uh, but yeah, this this one really worked for me. Yeah, because I liked his first two, and this one I liked the first sort of act. I liked the third act, the mm-hmm. bit where it literally gets lost in the woods. Lost me a bit, but it's all probably back by. That's- like, the final yeah i i think i'm definitely in the same camp of saying that that's the weakest stretch of the film but yeah i don't know i, I in when terms it's an anxiety of like nightmare. Kaufman adjacent stuff is great yeah there's a scene with like uh like go and paint which just absolute just stressed me out to no end and even i know the whole thing of him just trying to get to a shop across the road um yeah all, all that stuff sad. is just the man yeah, above the bat yeah, as well was a really uh horrifying oh my uh, god very yeah. simple image Jeez. as well but um uh, my bathroom yeah. is, is kind of built in a similar way as well so oh, i don't yeah. really like taking baths in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe the saddest in cinema maybe <laughs> what the, uh, yeah so yeah i think i liked most of it um not enough to win like him in top 10 but um but it's yeah, it's definitely. I don't think again one of the most definitely one of the most stressful experiences in a good way. <laughs> Absolutely. Ariaster is one of those people that if you mention you like horror, particularly as a woman, 
some dude will sit you down and tell you that they've about this wonderful new director that you'll never have heard of and it's always either Ariasta or Robert Eggers. So it is inevitable that these boring dudes are going to be boring people to tears with how wonderful Bo is Afraid is in a couple of years. But I feel that the length of it, coupled as well with the kind of the creepy Uncanny Valley posters, I just feel that they put people off and people couldn't grab onto anything. It's like, is it funny? Is it comedy? Uh, Is it horrifying? And it is horrifying. So much of it is horrifying. There is a sequence where he just literally has to cross the street to go into a shop, which is the most terrifying thing you've ever seen. It is a shop of a street of horror. Um, it's very well done. I really loved it. I saw it at a Q&A with Asta there. At all attempts to try and explain it by Asta, he couldn't do it in any way, shape or form. Any attempts to try and like put some kind of psychological basis to it, no, he was having none of it. Is just kind of enjoy what you enjoy. No segue is even remotely possible from Boys Afraid <laughs> to still a Michael J. Fox movie. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised how many documentaries I had in my top 10, and this was one of them. It's a I good mean, habit, good habit yeah. to have. And again, an Apple TV film who was sort of very quietly sort of building up quite a decent reputation for their uh, for the things they create. Um, it's really important. I, I don't know anyone on earth who doesn't like Michael J. Fox in some way. He's uh, such a charming presence. And this is a really, what I really admire about this, and actually it's a similar, it's another documentary that came out this year called Otto Baxter, Not a Fucking Horror Story. Um, both of them are dealing with people uh, who have disabilities, but it treats them on their own terms. It doesn't go out of their way to patronize or overly sentimentalize their conditions. Um, it treats them as people and them living their lives about it. And, you know, uh, if you know anything about Michael J. Fox, um, you'll just enjoy him telling it from his perspective. If you don't know anything, like I didn't actually know a lot about his life, uh, really. Really. Um, it's just quite insightful, and it's just he, again, he's just a very watchable presence. So just having, just watching him on screen for you know uh, an hour and a half or however long it is, is lovely. It's a lovely bit where he's out, out running, and he someone recognizes him as he runs past, and he falls over. But he sort of makes it's like a pratfall, and then he gets up and makes it sort of into a routine. So why? So obviously, because he falls over because of his Parkinson's, but it, he trans, But it's it, it sums up his whole attitude of like he's not letting it define him. He's it's it's a part of his life that he obviously can't ignore and he has to sort of live with, but he's still living his own life on his own terms. So it's just, yeah, it's just a really lovely, lovely little, it's not going to change the world necessarily. In, um, but it also does, uh, it's also quite well directed into the, like, the sort of the recreations it sort of does in sort of like when he's talking about, for example, when he's filming, um, oh, what was the sitcom, was it Family Matters or whatever it was? And in the June of day and then back to the future during the night and that sort of, uh, you know, incredible turnaround he would have to do. It captures that very well. So yeah, it's it's well worth a watch, especially you know, I mean, especially if you like Michael J. Fox, which as I, as I said, I don't think anyone doesn't like him. Yes, quite possibly true there. Keeping it in May uh, with Cat is the uh, Artifice Girl. Yes, so the Artifice Girl. I think it's available on Freebie in the UK now, so it's free to watch. Um, it's directed, written by, and stars Franklin Rich, and it's basically told in sort of three acts across different points in time and it begins with a police interrogation where this guy has been brought in with um, suspicious content on his hard drive he has a lot of uh, interactions with a very underage girl and 
the police are quite rightly questioning him when uh, it's actually revealed that the girl isn't real. Uh, he's not committing any crimes. The girl is actually uh, an AI that he has created uh, to trap pedophiles. And he basically spends his life uh, training this AI to sniff out those those people and so the film kind of follows the progression of this AI and then starts to bring in all these icky sort of like moral things of this AI is clearly intelligent, it's sentient to some degree, is this the life that it should be given? Uh, basically having to deal with the worst of the worst and you know how what kind of life life are we giving are we giving to this thing? And yeah, I just thought I really, really enjoyed it. It's like minimal cast and there's like four people across all of all of the years and my husband's a physicist so it was one that he really enjoyed from that point of view i enjoyed it because of the the sort of subject matter and the the moral quandary and yeah it's it's a really nifty sort of like sci-fi thriller that hurts your head if you think about it too much and is probably in some regards a little peek into the future in some respects of where AI could potentially go in the future, mm. which is which is also terrifying. Um, yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a lot more nuanced than AI bad, a lot of yes. other sort of sci-fi uh, Which is what I was expecting have... when I sat down and watched it. So I spent a big chunk of the film, I mean, I was raised on the Terminator film, so I just spent most of the film going, no, nah, don't trust it, don't trust it, don't trust it. But it, yeah, it does, it does something different to to the AI's bad films that are out there. The last segment, I can't remember who it is exactly, but it's a very late career. It's um, Lance Henriksen, isn't it? It's Lance Henriksen, remember yes. correctly. Who very rarely gets a chance to be anything other than, hey, look, it's Lance Henriksen from that thing. <laughs> so it's a really good performance for him, I think, in that one. Um, keeping it sci-fi, um, it's very, very opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, Naomi and Andy share this one in common. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. I love this film. So this is James Gunn uh, not only finishing up his Guardians trilogy, but also his reign at Marvel before going on to take over DC. And dear God, do they need him with the final installment of Star-Lord and uh, and his sort of fellow travellers. And we come back with... And it's not because obviously Gamora vanished or Gamora died during the whole highly complicated Infinity Stones malarkey and she is back in this film but she is not the Gamora that knew Quill she is a different Gamora one who has flipped back and who has been with the version of the Ravagers that has uh, Sylvester Stallone as its boss but they all come together to help Rocket who is being targeted by a terrible individual who is played by, I would, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his name. He's from The Peacemaker. He's extraordinary. I think it's Chuedi, but I'm absolutely convinced I pronounced that wrong. So apologies to him. Uh, who, it turns out, created Rocket and Rocket's little friends and is a terrible, terrible, terrible human being. It's one of the most god-awful villains. I wish somebody told me before I game it, went in to see this just how much of it is focused on CGI animal cruelty yeah. because the Rocket's backstory is horrifying as him and his lovely little friends are tortured by this maniac. It's the high, high commander, I think he's called. 
high evolutionary uh, high evolutionary high evolutionary he wants everything to be perfect he wants a world of perfect being so he is working on rocket and everybody else in order to to perfect everybody that's what he wants he is a you know purple clad psychopathic eugenicist who just wants a race of perfect being and rocket and his friends are the way of achieving that and it is devastating it is so devastating um you've got dave batista on out again stealing the whole shebang as drax he is absolutely brilliant in it i actually really liked that they didn't make star lord and gamora get together i liked the fact that they respected this is a different character she has this entire big speech where she says what is missing in you that i have to i have to be something to you why why do i have to be the one to fix you and star lord accepts that and respects that and it doesn't doesn't end with her swooning and falling in love with him because this is not that Gamora. The Gamora that he knows is, is gone. This is a completely different person with completely different wants and needs. And you have, uh, there is, it, we have the sort of Adam who is, who appeared at the end of Guardians 2, who is shoehorned in a little bit, but it works because he's such a himbo. He has no brains whatsoever. <laughs> he was created to be this superhuman, uh, it's Will Poulter, looking incredibly buff and he was created to be this massive weapon but he's just utterly brain dead so he's not much of a weapon at all and is easily swayed by the kind-hearted guardians and yeah i just basically did not expect to cry so much over a cgi raccoon it is very sad yeah. it's quite full-on it's not one that i've like i've rewatched one and two quite a lot and i feel like i would pour, i would pause to watch rewatch this one too much simply because rocket's backstory is so heavy bradley cooper does a phenomenal job uh with the vocals it's uh and it's a very very fine send-off i think everyone ends it in a good place star lord reconnect re- rediscovers his sense of family we have everyone becoming a guardian in the way that they need to be karen gillen's arc in particular in this she's phenomenal and continues to be she's an absolute uh you know brilliant comedian in this her very deadpan delivery is extraordinary it was it was much because you get to the third one in a trilogy they're never going to be great i love ant-man i thought the third one this year because it did everything wrong ant-man is supposed to be small and local and with his little daft ex-con buds and this did the other thing of putting him in the quantum realm and it didn't work. And I was a bit worried that we were going to get the same thing with Guardian, but we didn't. It was it was a beautiful send off. And I mean, they can keep making them, whether they'll be as good with James Gunn, I don't know. But it was a very fitting send off to the Guardians and a fitting swan song for James Gunn with Marvel. Yes, I cried all of the tears, all of the tears. But then that's... Oh my God, so but much. that's because Rocket came to my wedding, so... <laughs> <laughs> Rocket came to your yeah, wedding. Yeah, so the reference raccoon, uh, the reference raccoon Oreo, uh, that they Marvel used for Rocket uh, came came to my wedding. He is he's sadly no longer with us. So just all of the tears and like at the end in the special in the special mm. thanks, like James Gunn like thanked them, and one of the handlers has also passed away in recent years. So I was just like an absolute gibbering wreck. And again, oh, I no. love the Guardians. I'm not. I watch the Marvel films. I've kind of fallen out now that you have to watch 20 million episodes of a show to understand a reference yeah. in a film. 
but the guardians has been my favorite marvel and yeah i can't watch this one again anytime soon because it will just i don't really want to cry for like yeah. two hours no i mean i've i've rewatched one and two so much i mean i chris pratt is one of these fascinating things because i think he is insanely charismatic as star lord and also insanely uncharismatic in real life when you have him tweeting <laughs> yes. like a serial killer. So it is a fascinating mesh of actor and character, but he is such perfection in this. And one and two, even with the, the, the slightly sadder storyline where he discovers who his father is in two, um, there's still ones that I would happily throw on to cheer myself up. You're not putting this one on to cheer yourself up. You're just not. I guess a Bit more cheerful, but on the superhero theme, taking us into June. Uh, the sole June release, a Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Such a beautiful film, such a beautiful film. It, I mean, again, it's it's a little bit frustrating because it's so long, and also, obviously it's also part one. Yeah. I don't care for part ones, but I have rewatched this repeatedly. It picks up where the old film left off. You've got... And Miles Morales torn between his life as uh, Spider-Man and also being a sort of friendly neighborhood Spider-Man and whilst trying to maintain his studies and keep his family in the dark, which is becoming increasingly more difficult. And then all of a sudden uh, Gwen reappears in his life and she appears to have joined some kind of elite group of spider people and they all have little like temporal disruptor things which allows her to zip across various different timelines and universes and you get to meet you know indian spider-man who is an absolute joy and then we discover that this thing about how there are again talking about multiverse you could it you could confuse yourself enormously but there are fixed points in time in all of these universes thick fixed things that must play out and Miles isn't really down with that. And I love that. I love that the whole theme of this, as he says at the end, you will keep telling me what my story is. I'm going to tell you what my story is. And I love that because it's all about uh, self-identity and driving your own narrative. You've got Gwen in conflict with her father, who is convinced that Spider-Gwen is this murderess. And then he, he works out that who she is and immediately decides to quit the force because his daughter is more important and uh, then we also have this creation of spider-man creating his own greatest villain with the spot just by sort of disrespecting him and not considering him to be that important he feels dismissed he's sort of an incelly villain really he goes out then to get uh more notoriety and gain more and more power and it's very clever, and at the heart of it all, we have Oscar Isaac as, well, basically fascist Spider-Man sat there in the middle. Very, very terrifying. Very, it's uh, really good vocal work from him. He's very scary. And it's beautiful, beautiful animation across so many different styles and so many Spider-People. Like, you freeze-frame anything, there's Spider-People everywhere. You can't even begin to keep up with the various different references. It's brilliant. And it is part one. I don't like judging part one, but it is it is really interesting, and I cannot wait for part two. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is, well, phenomenal. It, I thought it was just a gorgeous work which shows why why perhaps 
other iterations of the multiverse on screen haven't been taken off. Whereas this and last year's Everything Everywhere All at Once used the fantastical concept to ground character work and highlight truths about them instead of establishing stakes or veering towards references which are more nostalgia baity, which just feel a bit, oh, come on. And mm-hmm. adding to it, you've got a gorgeous blend of visual styles, which are part of this tapestry that allows so many various worlds to coexist on screen. Every scene is a work of art and could hang in a gallery. And it also helps that you've got Daniel Pemberton's amazing score adding to it. I think it just phenomenally captures the very essence of Spider-Man while also questioning it. And yes, it's a part one, but Jesus Christ, what a part one it is. It was a very quick 140 minutes, and I, th- I think it's because it's yeah. it's structured like two prologues, a first act and a second act, and then no third act. <laughs> so uh, it should be frustrating, and maybe it is a bit frustrating, yeah. and yet at the same time, it's not a frustration. It's, no. It still works overall. Yeah. Very yeah, adventurous I mean, film for me. Exa- yeah, adventurous. That's a good word for yeah. it. It is adventurous because it's in its deranged, it's dizzying and it's dazzling. And despite that, it's coherent, compelling and creative and manages to bring in, you know, using the different um, art styles, um, animation styles to as a form of character expression, as well as thematic exploration. And we're looking at, you know, fate and choice, family, identity, place and roles. And it manages to do this balance of wit and emotion and ingenuity and i think it the point james made about other multiverse movies have sometimes been overly referential in a nostalgia baity sort of way spider-man across the spider-verse is referential without being baity it's got these sort of glimpses of oh nice moving on um it's not it doesn't feel indulgent it's always propulsive it's always very much rooted in its own progression both in terms of plot and uh, characterization um yeah extraordinary piece of work i just remember watching like the opening with like the drumming and the memories and the way it sort of all cuts together and matches the rhythm i was just watching it like no big budget mainstream film has any excuse not to be artistic like this because it's just an absolutely beautiful thing to watch just yeah, and I've seen it. I've been seeing it twice. Uh, it's like a sort of friends who hadn't seen it, and it, it's, it's again. It's, there's lots of details you can pick out from scenes uh, as you're watching it a second time, and things that sort of slot together, and uh, little details in the background, and so many great jokes as well. You might miss the first time round, or not even get the first time round. Yeah, it's yeah, it's terrific. We also got another animated film this month, which a lot of people thought we'd never end up seeing, which is uh, the Andy Stevenson adaptation, Nimona. Uh, yes, this one was also me. Um, it's funny how after Disney's acquisition of Fox seemed to have killed this project, Netflix Netflix swooped in and actually saved it from... And you can see why Disney did not finish the project. I mean, when the company has had lacking attempts at queer representation, they look quite pitiful compared to what Nimona does. And mm. that's... Uh, that's quite marvellous in its own right, but you've also got this really interesting tra- tale which combines a f- medieval style with a futuristic world where you've got a knight framed for regicide who's looking to clear his name and he's aided by a shapeshifter burned by the world's negative view of her that considers her a mo- monster just because she's not limited to 
a socially acceptable visage of herself when she just wants to be accepted for who she is. And I think it was just a phenomenal tale about the misguided fears run rampant courtesy of those in power overruling any logical thinking, which tragically can lead their targets to become self-fulfilling prophecies. But you've also got this really fun tale with a vibrant animated style. It just feels comic book inspired in eye-popping ways, from really stunning chase sequences to Nimona's just fiery-eyed grin as she go- as Nimona goes, METAL! And I think this was just exceptional work. And it's been an exceptional year, exceptional year for animation, I think. Um, anyone else see it? I haven't yet, because in, in one of the 2023's big cinema trends, I was kicked out of the Netflix I was sharing with a friend uh, no. recently. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> a loss. Been there. Been there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but no. yes, I, I am really looking forward to catching up with this because it does look very good. Um, yeah, of course, the, the summer months are not just about blockbusters. There are still plenty of smaller uh, independent and foreign language films released this year. And we'd also like to shine the spotlight on one of them. The great Claire Denise latest film stars at noon. It's actually not a foreign language film, just to clarify. <laughs> no, I was just broadening <laughs> that one. Yeah, it's... Uh... Her second English language film, um, with the great Margaret Qualley as the lead, who's um, still not particularly—I don't think she's cast as much as she should be. I don't know. Underrated, isn't yeah. the right way, but um, yeah, really hasn't. You know, you've got a lot of—you know—you've got your Annie Taylor Joys and you've got your Mia Goths and stuff. I think Margaret Qualley is 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 far far better than both of those actors and has had far less, um, I don't know, sort of uh, popularity or any sort of surge of um, growth. But anyway, that's not the point of the film. Um, Stars at Noon, yeah, Claire Denis, you know, she's probably top three director for me of all time. So it's very a very biased opinion. Um, I actually saw this film last year um, because it was released in America last year. Um, and I think only made its way over here on video on demand. I think you can rent it on Apple TV. I don't really, don't really know if it's any. I don't think it's on any streaming services. I don't think it had a cinematic release. A24 really sort of dropped it into the, sort of the abyss. Um, I don't think many people even know it's an A24 film. Um, <laughs> it's had a very strange release history. Um, you have one of the most uh, critically acclaimed French directors in the last 20 years releasing a second English language film that basically had no release at all. Um, which is mostly due to the fact it didn't do very well at Cannes Film Festival uh, in terms of critic reviews. Um, but I think it's an incredible film. I don't know if we're revealing our top 10 right now, but it's, it is my number one pick. Um, really, really love it. It's languid and dreamy and erotic and has a very strange Benny Safdie cameo. Also has an even stranger John C. Riley cameo. What? For about two minutes. Wow. Um, don't really know what the uh, where those two, where the Claire Denis John C. Riley connection comes from. I think it's because Claire Denis is a big fan of PTA. And I was going like, to say they're both in Licorice Pizza briefly as well. Yeah, I, I think they're was... Step Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think she's friends with. I think it's something to. I think I remember reading something about her and PTA being friends, or they they met once. But regardless, it has some very strange cameos. Uh, has Joel Elwin actually quite good most people think he's he's not very good in it but i think he's fairly 
he's fairly boring in it, but his character demands that. He's quite boring. Um, yeah, it's great, ambiguous. Um, I mean, if you if you have seen any Claire Denis films, you kind of know what you're getting. A very elliptical, subversive plot that has doesn't really go anywhere, but it has lots of texture, lots of emotion, lots of emotions. Um, yeah, really good. Um, and yeah, just go watch it online if you can. Um, it's it's definitely out there. I will. I'm yeah, <laughs> really excited to see that. Yeah, I think I think you'd probably really enjoy it. I think I don't yeah. know if you I don't know if you like the both side of the blade, which. I did. I thought last, both sides yeah. of the blade was good. Yeah, um, it has Claire Denis' most charming directorial characteristic, which is that every now and then she just goes, "You know what? Let's let this Tinder stick song play out in full." And I appreciate that. I can sympathise with that. That that also happens in this film, actually. And this yes. uh, this film has an incredible <laughs> Tinder stick soundtrack. Um, the, the title track is one of my one of their best in a long time, which is not to say any of, it, any of the rest of it's bad. And it also has an incredible dance sequence, which oh, yes. is Claire Denis' bread and butter, really. So yeah. um, I highly recommend this one for anyone who's a fan of Claire Denis. I don't think you probably, you probably wouldn't like it if you don't like her films already, but I do. So it was perfect for me. So I know that for a lot of people who were, you know, nerds, Let's not let's not sort of beat around the bush. A lot of people who are very film nerdy, there is no event quite like a new Wes Anderson film. Uh, and this year had, well, it had several. It had his uh, Roald Dahl adaptations on Netflix, all of which I thought were absolutely terrific. Uh, but we also had Asteroid City in the theatres in June. Um, yeah, I really love this one. I'm not sure if anyone else has it in there. Ten, but I, I was totally taken away by it. Um, yeah, I like Wes Anderson. have always Same. like Wes Anderson but I often get into disagreements with people because I think that Wes Anderson uh, in the immediate uh, past past two or three years has gotten a lot better not that he was ever bad but as in mm. I find his, his later work much more interesting than his earlier work um, and I get terribly frustrated when people say that Wes Anderson films have you know got two Wes Anderson uh, people mm. that can't see the video on the podcast I'm I'm doing the doing big, yeah. big, sarcastic air quotes there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think that the, the thing that makes Wes Anderson so interesting, especially his later films, is how, you know, I think he has a very distinctive style that he is constantly changing, constantly um, adding bits to and, and reapplying. And I think that a lot of people have a hard time understanding what that means because, you know, there's not many directors nowadays that have such a distinctive style that they just, you know, they're not changing it over, they don't, they don't have a different style for the different films. They just, they have, every every film has a similar aesthetic that is kind of slowly worked on. Um, you know, the only director I could immediately compare him to is, is somebody like Paul Schrader, who also makes very similar films, or Hong mm-hmm. Sang-soo, the one who, you know, they, they're kind of building this collection of films that are kind of similar, but very like incrementally building up. And I find that very interesting. And I think Asteroid City is just, you know, the sort of, you know, another stage of that development. Um, I think it's a very funny film. I think it looks beautiful. Um, of course, there's you know like 50 actors in the film um, that are all very good, and very big. Um, I mean, I, I love Jeffrey Wright in West yes. Anderson films. He was so good in The French Dispatch, and he's he's very good here. Um, Tom Hanks as well, doing some great stuff. Willem Dafoe, Tilda Swinton, Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, it's just also Jason Schwartzman is so good, and I'm. I'm I really wish we lived in a world where he got more 
lead performances um, that, you know, in bigger films, but he's very good. And yeah, just really thought it was really fun. Thought it was really funny. Um, I haven't seen the Roald Dahl adaptations yet. I know maybe, maybe they're coming later on. I don't know, but I haven't seen them yet and I really need to. But I think that, yeah, I'm very excited to see where I'm. I'm always very interested to see how directors' films are going to be when they get to like 80 or 70 or something. And yeah. uh, I think Wes Anderson is the one I'm, I'm most excited for because I, I can't wait to see what kind of weird stuff he comes up with as older he gets. And I think it's in my common opinion that directors get much weirder the older they get. So <laughs> looking forward to that. I think Asteroid City has my funniest moment I've had in the cinemas in the year where uh, Jeffrey Wright gets the telegram from the president and he just reads it and then looks up and goes, it's the president. He's furious. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. And scrolls it up. <laughs> yeah, he's he's very good. Now. He's very good. I thought you raised quite an interesting point there, Oliver, when you said he keeps adding things mm. to his style, and I think that's where kind of Asteroid City sort of got in the way of itself for me. It was a film that I did enjoy. I thought there's a lot to chew on. Probably too much for a first viewing for me, but I don't know. I just thought like with it being so what is it a radio broadcast about a television show about a story <laughs> that's actually within a play yeah <laughs> it's 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 definitely one of those that so it's it's all four of those things but i'm not entirely sure which sort of part of the russian doll is is the play etc um i don't know it's it's sort of lost me after a little while and I don't know I, I i do tend to enjoy wes anderson films a lot more uh when i see them again uh, so mm. I I have no doubt that this one will uh, move up in my estimations. But, um, I actually think that the Roald Dahl adaptations are, are his best work from this year, particularly Poison, the, uh, the last one with Dev Patel and Benedict Cumberbatch, which was uh, a, a really surprising short film for me. Yeah, it's definitely a Christmas holiday watch for me, I think. So yeah, oh, that's a good call. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. The summer months are not just about blockbusters. There are still plenty of smaller uh, independent and foreign language films released this year. And we'd also like to shine the spotlight on one of them. The great Claire Denis' latest film, Stars at Noon. It's actually not a foreign language film, just to clarify. No, I was just broadening <laughs> that one. Yeah. It's a, a second English language film. Um with the great Margaret Qualey as the lead, who's um, still not particularly... I don't think she's cast as much as she should be. I don't know. No, Underrated I would agree. Isn't yeah. the right way. But, um, yeah, really hasn't... You know, you've got a lot of... You know, you've got your Annie Taylor-Joys and you've got your Mia Goths and stuff. I think Margaret Qualey is, is, is far, far better than both of those actors. Has had far less, um, I don't know, sort of popularity or any sort of surge of... Um, growth but anyway that's not the point of the film um stars at noon yeah claire denis you know she's probably top three director for me of all time so it's very a very biased opinion um i actually saw this film last year um because it was released in america last year um and i think only made its way over here on video on demand i think you can rent it on apple tv i don't really don't really know if there's any i don't think it's on any streaming services i don't think it had a cinematic release a24 really sort of dropped it into the sort of the abyss um i don't think many people even know it's an a24 film um <laughs> it's had a very strange release history um you have one of the most uh critically acclaimed french directors in the last 20 years releasing a second english language film that basically had no release at all um 
which is mostly due to the fact it didn't do very well at Cannes Film Festival uh, in terms of critic reviews. Um, but I think it's an incredible film. I don't know if we're revealing our top 10 right now, but it's, it is my number one pick. Um, really, really love it. It's languid and dreamy and erotic and has a very strange Benny Safdie cameo. Also has an even stranger John C. Riley cameo. What? Been on for about two minutes. Oh wow. Um, don't really know what the uh, where those two, <laughs> where the Claire Denis John C. Riley connection comes from. I think it's because Claire Denis is a big fan of PTA. And I was going like, to say they're both in Licorice Pizza briefly as well. Yeah, I, I think they're was... Step Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think she's friends with. I think it's something to. I think I remember reading something about her and PTA being friends, or they they met once. But regardless, it has some very strange cameos. Uh, has Joel Elwin actually quite good? Most people think he's he's not very good in it, but I think he's fairly he's fairly boring in it. But his character demands that he's quite boring. Um, yeah, it's great, ambiguous. Um, I mean, if you if you have seen any Claire Denis films, you kind of know what you're getting. A very elliptic, subversive plot that has doesn't really go anywhere, but it has lots of texture, lots of emotion, lots of emotions. Um, yeah, really good. Um, and yeah, just go watch it online if you can. Um, it's it's definitely out there. I will. I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> excited to see that. Yeah, I think I think you'd probably really enjoy it. I think I don't yeah. know if you. I don't know if you liked the both side of the blade, which came. I out did. I thought both year. sides of the blade was good. Yeah, um, it has Claire Denis' most charming directorial characteristic, which is that every now and then she just goes, "You know what? Let's let this Tinder stick song play out in full." And I appreciate that. I can sympathise with that. That that also happens in this film actually. And this yes. this film has an incredible <laughs> Tinder stick soundtrack. Um, the, the title track is one of my one of their best in a long time, which is not to say any of, it, any of the rest of it is bad. And it also has an incredible dance sequence, which oh, yes. is Claire Denis' bread and butter, really. So yeah. um, I highly recommend this one for anyone who's a fan of Claire Denis. I don't think you, prob- you probably wouldn't like it if you don't like her films already, but I do. So it was perfect for me. So. Changing it up a little bit mid-year here. Um, there's so like we alluded to earlier with Pearl being a hangover from 2022. There's a lot of movies, I assume, from the two of you, because you see a lot of festival stuff, that you would have liked to put on your list, but maybe isn't out yet. And also just stuff that people should look out for. Just a few. Yeah, I mean, it's really frustrating. Literally, if, if you were to look at my top five of the year, it's all films that aren't out yet. So The Holdovers which is out very soon. It's baffling because it's a Christmas movie and they've held it in the UK until January. It's Paul Giamatti as a teacher at a very posh boarding school in the 70s. You can basically get stuck with the holdovers, the kids whose parents don't want them to go home for Christmas. And you have Dominic Sessa as one of these kids and the dinner lady is played by a Divine, I think her name is. Uh, she's up for, I've been, mean, she pretty much has the best supporting actress on lock. And it's all about class and race and who gets to be privileged That's, and who gets to tell stories. The, it's also incredibly funny. Is that the Alexander Payne. The Alexander one, Payne. Yeah. yeah, it's very, 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 very funny. I think people are being a bit dismissive of how much of a threat Giamatti is in the Oscar race. He is phenomenal. 
That's out in January. Um, then we have another one that's out in January, which we will tell you now will emotionally destroy you, called All yeah. of Us Strangers. Okay. This is it's quite hard to talk about because it, it's... I don't really know how you describe it. A metaphysical ghost story? It's basically Andrew Scott, who is... Again, a struggling writer living in a multi-multi-million-pound apartment, as far as I can see, who connects with Paul Mascal, who lives in his building as well, and then reconnects with his dead parents, played by Claire Foy oh, and no. Jamie Bell. Yeah. All you need to know is that I'm not someone who cries very much out at films or reacts that much at all. And I came out of this and was sobbing so inconsolably down the escalator on the Picture House Central that people coming up were like, what the hell is going on? What have they just seen? Because I saw it at a press screening at London Film Festival. Everyone was like, what's going on? Is there something wrong? Do we need to leave the building? Couldn't breathe. I started 15 minutes crying, 15 minutes in. Couldn't stop. I know that Kat's seen it recently yeah, as well. Yeah, prepare to have the Pet Shop Boys, You're Always On My Mind, and Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Power of Love. Just ruined. Just ruined forever. Like, <laughs> Oh, the Power, power of Love would just utterly... Like, I just dog now, you know, tears. you hear that and just tears. I mean, Andrew Scott has been my favourite theatrical actor for years. He is extraordinary on stage. I mean, utterly extraordinary. He did a one-man play of Vanya this year which should have been utterly ridiculous considering he was playing the female characters as well but he was incredible but he's never really had I think a film or tv role and he's going to be everywhere because he's going to be in the Netflix version of Ripley as well which is filmed some time ago but is out soon so that is fantastic poor things Emma Stone as Frankenstein Mark Ruffalo as a hilariously libidinous uh con man who cannot cope at all with her sexuality willem dafoe is like a mad scientist you will see more of emma stone than you could ever have conceived possibly more than even her gynecologist <laughs> gets to see yeah uh, it has been at the but it's great it's been at the heart of a lot of the puritine movement that movie oh, yeah, hasn't it? Pure, uh, pure things they're gonna love i liked though that i mean she's in, she is phenomenally brave you would not what i found the bravest is that normally when you get an a-list actress like that who is prepared to strip off there are rules it has to be an actor of equal stature to her they have to show equal there's these contracts will like determine how much each one shows etc here she is fully nude and performing you know incredibly explicit sex acts with bit part actors they are not anybody they are not names they're no one i mean i mean that with the greatest of respect to them and that's not something that anybody else would do i don't think it's always you know if you like i rewatched out of sight last night which is surprisingly chased for how sexy it is but you know there are obviously rules about how much you can show of j-lo how much you can show of george clooney this she's just out there with some some you know bit part actor that that yeah, it's extraordinary. It's it's a wonderful film. It's very, very funny. It's all Candifloss looking. It's I really like the fact that it is solidly feminist at its core. It's fantastic. I think people will love it. Looking forward to and that, yeah. Think the, and the final one for me is kind of a total uh, tonal uh, change is the zone, Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest, which is 90 minutes of sheer unadulterated hell with Sandra Huller, 
uh, as a family growing up in the literally right next door to Auschwitz. It has a soundtrack Ooh. that may as well have been soundtracked by Hieronymus Bosch. It is halfway through. I was like, is, is that gunfire? Yep. Yeah, no, it's just gunfire screams because the whole point is that, is that to that family, that was white noise. It is a screw 90 minutes of screaming furious rage that it feels very much needed right now. It's literally it on my watch an pile and now I'm terrified. <laughs> it's 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 only 90 minutes. It's only 90 minutes, but like she has a she has an entire speech about how we have everything we want and this is where we want to be and this is where our family is. And at the end of every single line she says, you can say, "Yes." Right next to Auschwitz, <laughs> it's it's just scene after scene of horrifying images. At one point, her children are playing with teeth. Uh, her her girlfriends are uh, squabbling over a bag of clothes stolen from Jewish women that enter the camps. It's horrifying. Well, he's uh, and brilliant. Jonathan, it's brilliant. Jonathan Glazer's new one, isn't it? So he's really yep. filling a niche, I guess. And also, I'm kind of fascinated by, uh, probably far too lengthy for this podcast, but the rules of how international films apply, because apparently we are in for the best chance of the best international film Oscar, because the zone of interest is from Britain, which I find is bizarre. weird. But it is. It is Britain's entry. It's on the shortlist. Very, very likely to be nominated. But yes, we we are in with the best shot of winning this from Britain. Which I just find a bit odd. Lawless. It is. It is wonderful and horrifying. And you will not look at Sandra Hiller again. You may have all been either anatomy of a fool. Wait till you've seen her in this. Cat. Uh, um, any picks yes. from you to look forward to? Uh, so uh, for me, I mean, I've seen over like 150 films at festivals. Festivals are sort of my bread and butter when it comes to reviewing. Um, so one that's coming out in January is uh, Jackdaw by Jamie Childs. It's his feature debut, but he's He's worked on like all the big TV shows, um, Who, Sandman, um, one of the he did with the Lord of the Rings episodes. Uh, it stars Oliver Jackson Cohen from Invisible Man and Hill House as an ex-motocross racer and army veteran who returns to his uh, northern town and gets caught up with the criminal underbelly when his brother goes missing. Uh, it was filmed in Hartlepool. And the cinematography is incredible. It's that it, it reminds me of. I mean, I grew up in Nottingham, but it reminds me of where I grew up in that it's pylons, like industrial estates, and then suddenly like random countryside, and it's all filmed at sort of like dusk and yeah. dusk and dusk and dawn, and it's almost like a British John Wick, but it's probably more akin to something like Bull. I guess would be sort of like a British, uh, like a British mm. thing. Um, had a lot yeah. of fun with that. Um, one that screened at Fright Fest, which is getting released in the US in January. So I guess the UK will hopefully be not too long after. It screened as Farang there, but it's uh, now been renamed Mayhem. It's the new one by Xavier again. It uh, is very much not his French extremity, but it is following his action that he's done with Gangs of London, the TV show. Uh, he's got Jude Poyer, the stunt coordinator from that, doing the action. And it's like, it's a revenge thriller, but 
it spends a good hour or so building up the characters so you really feel for the lead and his family that he has created and so when things go wrong you really feel the the impact of that and the action is just insane there's a sequence in a lift where people yeah I was about to say that's the lift one, isn't it? Yeah, It gets like a machete through his arm and whilst it's still in his arm, he's using it to stab people and it's just completely bonkers. (laughs) Yeah, it's completely bonkers gore and has a real emotional kick and I rewatched it recently with my husband and it's it's probably not the best for fathers and daughters because it it really tugs on on those heartstrings. So he was a bit of a mess after Mm. that. Um, another one from Fright Fest is The Moor, which screened as the first Blood Strand. It's directed by Chris Cronin, no relation to, to Lee. Uh, it is set around the Yorkshire Moors. It's kind of true crime mixed with a bit of foundage, uh, lots of grief. So there's a girl who, when she was a child, her best friend got taken by some sort of child abductor, serial killer. His remains were never found. 25 years later, his father asks for her help. And so they go back to the moors and they're looking for the body with the aid of mediums. Uh, so then like the horror elements start to work in. Uh, it made sheep terrifying. It looks beautiful. Um, yes. It, yeah. I really want to catch this one. Who, is uh, it, I know is that he's shopping released? it to distributors at the moment. Uh, he may or may not be changing the ending. Uh, so those... And that will be those that have the Well, it's it's the bit just before the ending. For those that have seen it, it's the bit just before oh, it's okay. yeah. It's it. I haven't seen. There's it. something that it's. There's a lot of stuff on the moors, and then it's not on the moors, and then the ending happens, and it's kind of that little bit in the middle. They're trying to work out whether it works better yeah. with or without it because it is about two hours, so it is a little bit long for for some people. Um, Another wreck is Strange Darling, which is screened at Fantastic Fest. It stars, I'm not a stalker, it stars stars Kyle Gellner and Willa Fitzgerald. Um, It's directed (laughs) by J.T. Mulner and it's a non-linear man and woman, cat and mouse serial killer film, which doesn't go where you expect it to. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, it's yeah, Willa Fitzgerald is amazing in House of Usher and this is just solidifies her for me. And my final pick is one that I know that Naomi also enjoyed, and that is What You Wish For. Stars Nick Stahl. Can't really say much about it other than it's a uh, chef who gets in over his head when he goes to visit his friend. He kind of thinks his friend's got the perfect life and then steps into his shoes and realises quite quickly that, yeah, careful what you wish for. As the title suggests, the grass is not greener. And it's it's a really fun, like, dark comedy of just this guy getting in yeah yeah Solid definitely there's a, there's a business model in there that that we may or may Solid not discuss, business plan. uh <laughs> for legal reasons <laughs> we have discussed i think it is I think it's a very clear, solid business plan, and to be frank, I've yeah. put it down as my retirement plan <laughs> it is it's a real shame because it seems to have played kind of off strand at a lot of festivals. I mean, and it won. It, it won Celluloid Screams really, Audience really Award. Good. It was. It was the winner. So you know, when it you get yeah. it in front of the right crowd, mm-hmm. it really plays. It's a very welcome return for for, for Nick so Stahl as well, who had such a promising career that was kind of very derailed, and he's fantastic in this. What I love is just the matter of fact pragmatism throughout. It's just like, well, 
guess guess this is what I do now. All the way through, it's it's re- it is an absolute surefire uh, crowd pleaser. So I very much hope. I looked and I couldn't see that it had distribution in the UK. So I very much hope that it somebody picks it up. Fingers crossed. Some cool sounding stuff there. Very much so. Well, before we uh, go away for uh, just under a week, before we hand over to Pop Screen for the second half of our review of the year, there's just time for the baleful duty of nominating our least favourite films of the year. (laughs) And I'm going to start off with the person who actually pumped the air with his fists when we said (laughs) we'd be doing this, uh, which is Simon. Right, yes. Um, Well, I actually have uh, probably two... Well, I, I, well, okay. So, how many are we allowed with this? Uh, let let's let's say a couple. Let's let's max it out as a couple. Okay, that's fine. Well, I, I will take a couple then because um, my second least favorite film of the year was uh, actually a film that I did finish, um, <laughs> the Retirement Plan with with Nicolas Cage. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, very unfortunate. Um, I think it might be my least favorite Nicolas Cage film. Um, basically, his Jerry Action film. Uh, his granddaughter uh, is, is shipped off to go see him in the. Uh, is it in the Bahamas or the she- uh, the Seychelles? It's somewhere really me. nice. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's basically low budget, just completely joyless action, quote unquote, comedy without any laughs in it whatsoever. Um, so yeah, okay, I did see that one from beginning to end. Uh, the actual worst film that I, uh, again, quote-unquote, saw this year was uh, Paw Patrol, the mighty movie. <laughs> um, now, this was... Uh, this the second getting... one. Yes, yes, I believe so. <laughs> I mean, come on. Like, I really know, please. Um, yeah, no, so this was me getting on the um, on the hype of uh, Barbenheimer, um, and there was a lot of... Um, stuff about Saw Patrol. Uh, so Saw 10 and Paw Patrol the Mighty Movie came out on the same day. Classic counter-programming. So I had a, you know, quite a moderately good time watching Saw 10. Nice 4DX screening, getting splattered with water, you know, whenever there was some brain surgery going on. That was that was fun. And, you know, we had a couple of cans during the film. It was it, it was quite good. And I thought, you know what, I'm, I've, I've got an Odeon Limitless card, you see. I'm going to go on the way home to watch um, the last screening of Paw Patrol, the Mighty Movie, and um, I think ear splitting doesn't really do it justice. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, uh, a, a horrendous experience. Um, and I think as well, we have this strange UK dub where um, all of the uh, you know the the, the talented uh, voice artists in the US. You've got McKenna Grace. You've got um, Chris Rock. Um, quite a quite a few notable names in there. Kristen Bell as well. Um, all replaced by these strange Tory sounding children, and uh, they they also uh, replaced Lil Rel Howry's character with I'm not even joking Trevor McDonald. <laughs> So, so so if you look up on Instagram, uh, Trevor McDonald has done promotional material for Paw Patrol: The Mighty Movie, Um, and it is one of the saddest (laughs) and strangest things I've 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 seen this year. Uh, I lasted thirty minutes into this before I was like, I I can't do it. I I cannot do it. It it is to this day the only film that I've walked out of in in sheer kind of (laughs) terror rather than apathy. So 
um, it's wow. it's been an interesting year. I have seen some crap this year. I will say that, and that is entirely down to personal <laughs> choice. Um, so yeah, it it hasn't been the greatest year in the world, but uh, Paw Patrol is definitely at the bottom. Vincent, have you got anything that can top that? Well, it's actually I'm going to follow on from that because Simon gave us uh, the patrol part of Saw Patrol. And I'm going to say my worst film of this year is Saw X. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. God, now, God. How about this? This may have been partly influenced by the fact that in the run-up to that, this was part of me watching the entire Saw franchise. <laughs> James and I have discussed this on our podcast. So, yeah. Um Ugh. And to watch all of the whole Saw franchise in space of a month is not a particularly enjoyable experience. It's like, you know, it's kind <laughs> Speak of... Speak for yourself, okay. But of the <laughs> lot, I think that Saw X is one of the worst because it was, for me, and, you know, if other people like it, good for them. You know, that's fine. All opinions are available. But I found Saw X to be interminably protracted it was bizarrely neutered for a, which is a strange thing to say about a Saw movie. And I thought this feels a bit tame. Um, the reveals were obvious. The monologuing was tedious. There was a complete lack of suspense. There, there was a lack of stakes. I felt there was no drama. And I would frankly, I think it would have been better named Your Un. That was my worst film of the year. And although I will admit it's kind of a close thing because something I saw more recently um, that I had high hopes for, oh, Sorex I went into with low expectations, but I went into Napoleon with quite high expectations. Ah, and that I found to be very frustratingly unfocused, um, mm -hmm. that it did never struck a balance between narrative um, or interpersonal relations, political intrigue, and military conflict. Um, Napoleon is a movie that looked nice, but went, and I'm like, yeah, can we have some detail, please? Ironically, perhaps, I would have liked, I have heard an assessment of Napoleon that it may have been, that the four-hour cut may be preferable because it allow more delving into what's going on. In the case of Saw X, I'd be happy to have a 90-minute cut because why the fuck was that thing two hours long? <laughs> yeah, so Napoleon was bad. Saw X was worse. James, what ruined your afternoons this year? We, I talked about one of my favourite films of the year, Nimona, as it's an excellent example of what Netflix original films should aspire to be. One of the worst films I saw this year was what more what you expect from a Netflix original film. It was called The Outlaws. Right. I don't uh, know this. And this is a film with Pierce Brosnan, Ellen Barkin, Nina Dobrev, and Adam Devine. Um, it's about a bank manager who believes that his fiance's parents were responsible for robbing a bank, his bank. And it's a heist comedy, which is a failure as both a heist film and a comedy film. Um, it, when your biggest set piece involves Adam Devine going into a bank dressed as Shrek, then you've got to be thinking. <laughs> Shall I go to a funeral to get more laughs? <laughs> um, <laughs> I kind of want to see that now. Yeah, so I didn't like I that know. It's not worth it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want to get anyone's hopes up here. Um, that's what I would say is my worst film of the year was a film I watched for Nerdly to review. It was 
I don't know if I don't think any of you would have seen it. It's called Strain One Hundred. It's I don't like to diss low budget films because they do feel like people are putting all their resources into trying to make something in spite of not having a blockbuster style budget. But if this was just a dull zombie film, then it wouldn't make my list. It's the fact that it's an 84 minute film, which somehow, despite being delayed because of the pandemic, it feels reactionary to it by having bits in it, which feel like it was geared towards anti-vaxxers particularly the gun-toting ones. There's, well, a whole thing about how the end of the world was caused by a vaccine, but then there's also a really weird bit where the film just stops to have YouTubers who are essentially gun fetishists come on to kind of shoot zombies. There's literal (laughs) scene where, I'm going to get the name wrong, but this is just an example. Someone just comes on with a gun going, hi, my name is ShadyCock84. Perhaps you've heard of me. (laughs) (laughs) Best supporting actor, (laughs) ShadyCock84. It's... I try to find the best in films. So I found the best thing about this film. It ended. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of want to see this to check my supposition that James's review is more entertaining than the movie itself. (laughs) Uh, Oliver, what have you particularly Um, disliked this year? Well, um, to be honest with you, I... There's loads of films I've watched that I had to review that I haven't liked. None of them are particularly worth mentioning. Um, there's only one film I've really watched this year that I thought I I wanted to like, really didn't like. So, mm. which I guess is uh, arguably more interesting than a film that I just watched and just thought nothing of. Um, and this is probably a hot take because I think it's fairly. I don't I think I also went away for a few minutes, so it might have already been talked about. <laughs> Okay. In someone's favorite film, but I really did not care for Infinity Pool uh, by Brandon Cronenberg. Uh-huh. Um, okay. I was a reasonably big, good fan of the last one. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. Um, but yeah, this one just couldn't get on board with it at all. Um, I thought the concept was 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 interesting, um, but I thought um, my my letterbox review comparison I did was when I first watched Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, well, I, you know, it's like four years ago when I first watched it. I was annoyed that the uh, weird, cool mask, uh, crazy thing was like so short and wasn't the entire film. I was like, oh, we need more of this weird stuff. And then I rewatched that film and realized how good it is that you only see like a small amount of it because it, it makes it so much more impactful. Um, getting this like brief glimpse into the sort of depravity. Um, yeah. Whereas this film is the film that I wanted four years ago, where it's like constant, like every five minutes, it's just like weird, crazy rich people with masks on, like doing something horrible. Um, and I'm I'm very fed up and, and kind of bored of films about how rich people are like freaky and weird and evil. Um, mm. I just think it's a very played out concept uh, at this point. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was kind of not interesting. It has a concept that is very interesting, but it doesn't really do anything with it that I think was particularly very interesting um also very boring uh expression of like uh masculinity like the main character is like like constantly like berated and i, I don't know if that's there's, there's obviously some sort of commentary on him as a as a, as a as a crap writer and a sort of kind of a loser um but i just thought it was very boring 
uh, basic stuff uh, and also thought it looked kind of ugly like Brandon Cronenberg has these like horrible close-ups that are just like I, I don't know they're very hard it's like, hard to explain why I didn't like them so much but they're just so they don't they're just like it just randomly appears on someone's eyes for like no reason it just really cuts <laughs> me <laughs> um but I didn't absolutely hate it. I wouldn't say it was like, if I said it was the worst film I saw a year, which it probably was, it sounds like it's, I thought it was like despicable. I just haven't seen uh, that many films I didn't like this year. Um, You've had a great year. I enjoyed Infinity Pool for what it's worth. No, I mean, it, I, yeah, as I said, I, I can see why people would like it. It wasn't really for me, but um, yeah, I, to be honest with you, I've, <laughs> most of the films I've watched this year have been in the last two weeks and mostly just watched <laughs> ones that I knew I was going to like. So, um, yeah, yeah, I didn't didn't like this one too much. Um, I also didn't really like the sort of dreamy surrealist things. I don't really. I'd rather a film be really wacky and, and out there, or just like normal rather than sort of weird hybrid of both. Um, but yeah, as I said, I actually, but I I will say that I really liked the sound design and the soundtrack was really good. Um, and I thought the set and prop design was also really interesting. Um, I just wasn't too big on the the uh, sort of the way that the content, the way that, that the themes and the the, the story was was uh, explored, particularly very much. Yeah, I've kept quiet about my least favorite because it is on someone's list, uh, <laughs> and you know, it's, I also think it would be a fun guessing game for listeners to try and work out which one it is. Um, but yes, has it been uh, mentioned so far? It has. Ooh. It's it's Ooh. not one of yours. I'll give you that. But yes, Uh, Mike, have you got anything to throw in the bin? Uh, Yeah, like Ollie, I've been lucky. I struggled to think of films I really didn't like. And then I remembered I did almost out of obligation go see Exorcist Believer, um, even though I knew it was probably not going to be great. Um, And to be fair, I think if it didn't have The Exorcist on it, it would be largely mm. forgotten. Uh, because it's an exorcist film, it got a lot more attention than it probably deserved. Poor Ellen Burstyn. What did she do to deserve <laughs> the way her character is treated in this film? Um, it's just a bit crap. It's just, it's just, it's like, uh, and just having too many characters that it doesn't know how to deal with and, does, and so does them all really badly. There's some interesting plot things buried in there, but they don't explore them properly. And the exorcism itself is bad in that it's just not very dramatic it feels just it's just very unsatisfying and it's i don't understand how there's going to be two more because it feels like what, what are they going to the do next already? Uh, it does feel like that it's really strange yeah. it's just it's just a bit crap and mm-hmm. long and just there's nothing really to it um but and then the one i was a bit disappointed with I, 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 it feels harsh to say it's my worst film of the year but i didn't come out of it like with great feelings about it um it was the the Eternal Daughter, Joanna Hogg, which I was sort of excited for. Because I thought, oh, it'd be a good story. It's got Tilda Swinton playing double parts. And it's just, I, was, I sort of got what it was going for quite early on. And it was like, oh, is that it? <laughs> it's just a bit, it felt very sort of superficial and empty, which is all shame. Because Tilda Swinton does a very good job in it. So it's all—it's not like horrible thing to watch. It's just very sort of like, oh, right, it's just another horror grief movie. And it doesn't yeah. really put any interesting spin on it, particularly. Um, and it's sort of like it feels like it's building up to something, and then it's just like, oh, that's it. And it's yeah. yeah. So it's, it yeah, it's too very nothing. Yeah, which is a shame. Um, it's got it's, it's a beautiful location, and it's as I said, the performers are good, but it's just very much like. Eh. I think it would have been yeah. better actually if it wasn't 
a ghost story if it just sort of, uh, like, yeah. sort of sat on its own as a you know a, a drama about you know storytelling and memory i think it would be you know yeah. perfectly coherent but yeah. sort of bolting on this horror element to it just doesn't yeah. hold water for me yeah shame so that was yeah that's more disappointing whereas exes believer at least knew going is like that's probably not gonna be great and it was <laughs> better than i thought it could be but it was still crap so you know <laughs> Well, uh, we'll be back on your feed with July to December, going through Barbenheimer and more on Thursday the 11th of January. Do remember that that will be on the pop screen feed, not director's uncut. But that's been your lot from me, Mike, Oliver, Simon, James and Vincent. And we'll see you for part two. Yeah, I, I want to know what your least favorite from the was. Yeah, we need I to know I fucking now. hate Tar. I oh, hate no. Oh, oh, really? Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> Get out.